One question we like in Hollywood, we'd like to know how you compare movie working to, say, the concert tour or recording sessions. You know, minor work and stuff like that. Well, we don't compare it much. You know. uh, would you rather play the Hollywood Bowl again in Dodger Stadium? We don't really mind. Maybe we can um, start another controversy here. One of your countrymen was here yesterday or the day before, before he returned to England, or on his arrival in England. He said he thought uh, American women were out of style for not wearing miniskirts, and that they're, because they didn't wear miniskirts, their legs were ugly. Uh, I'd like to ask you what you think about American women's legs. Well, if they He's don't wear miniskirts, how does he know their legs are ugly? You know, on your uh, album cover that was banned here, first of all, whose idea was it? And second of all, what was it supposed to mean from your standpoint? What's he say? Can you say that again? <laughs> you know, the album cover that was banned here, you know, oh, yeah. along with the dolls and the meat, whose idea was it? And yeah, what, the photographers that took it. And what was it supposed I mean, was there we any meaning behind it? No. John, why did you decide to make How I Won the War, minus the other people? Because um, uh, he just asked me. No, and I just said yes. And it was just like that. Do you uh, consider that now, uh, since you've been in the United States here for almost a week, that this religious issue is answered once and for all? Would you clarify so. and repeat uh, the answer that you gave you in Chicago? I can't repeat it again because I don't know what I said, you know. Well, would you clarify the you remarks read, that were attributed you know, to you? You tell me what you think I meant, and I'll tell you whether you, I agree or... Well, you know. some of the remarks attributed to you in uh, some of the newspapers, the press here, uh, said that uh, concerning the remark that you made comparing the relative popularity of the Beatles with Jesus Christ and that yeah. the Beatles were more popular. This created quite a controversy and a furor in this country, <coughs> as you are obviously aware. Do you know that, John? Created now, uh, would you uh, clarify the remark? Well, I've clarified it about 800 times, you know. I could have said TV or something else, you know, and that's as clear as it can be. I just use Beatles because I know about them a bit more than TV. I could have said any number of things. Wouldn't have got as much publicity, though. <laughs> my, my, question, my question is directed at all of you. Do you think this... Uh, this controversy has hurt your careers or has helped you professionally? Obviously, you're quite aware of it. It hasn't helped or hindered it, I don't think. I think most sensible people took it for what it was. And it was only the um, bigots that took it up and thought it was, you know, on their side. They thought, ha-ha, here's something to get them for. But when they read it, uh, they saw that, you know, there was nothing wrong with it, really. It's just that they thought that by us saying, uh, by John saying that we were more popular than Jesus, they thought, ah, you know, he's bound to be arrogant. Did you see the fellow on telly last night? He said it. Tonight, sure. I'd just like to simplify things a little by suggesting that the two gentlemen with the roving mic select the questioners rather than me because they can move around faster. So if you want to ask a question, please draw the attention of one of the two roving microphone men. Uh, my question concerns uh, money. Uh, I was wondering if you still have an arrangement with the U.S. Internal Revenue Department to pay your taxes to England through them. Another part of uh, the question is, how much money have you grossed in your current U.S. tour, and is it true that oh. you lost? We don't know. Money's got nothing to do with that. 
We don't do the money side of it, you know. Brian does that, and we don't particularly they worry about it. Tell us what we get in the end. <laughs> the uh, tax thing. We pay tax and things, but we don't know how much or how much we've made or anything, you know, because uh, if we were going to worry about that, we'd be nervous wrecks by now. I'd like to direct this question to Messrs. Lennon and uh, McCartney. In uh, a recent article, Time Magazine put down pop music, and they referred to uh, Day Tripper as being about a prostitute, oh, yeah. and Norwegian Wood about as being about a lesbian. Oh, yeah. Now, I just wanted to know what what your intent was when you wrote it, and what sh what your feeling is about the Time Magazine criticism of the music that is being written today. Well, you're just trying to write songs about prostitutes and lesbians, that's all. <laughs> Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, hello, hello. Hi, hi, hi. And welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. And remember... This is widescreen podcasting. This is wide screen screen podcasting. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles. Thank you all for tuning in, turning in, turning off, switching off, switching on, and exploding. I hope you're all well, safe, and sound. Okay, everyone, we're finally here. A little later than everyone else, admittedly. But hey, we had to finish off Driving Rain, and I was also working on other episodes, and I've there's so many in their pipeline and I've been focusing far too much on them and I also had to shit can another episode but thankfully all of that is now behind us and we can now focus on one of the big releases of this year you know the end of this year 2022 why do I say one of well as you will undoubtedly know this has been a very big year of Beatle based releases but as far as Beatle purists go we are going to be discussing the year's most exciting release, slash re-release, slash re-re-re-release, a.k.a. the Giles Martin-produced Revolver box set. Yes, this is the super deluxe box set of Revolver, and we're going to be once again breaking our loose-as-hell-no-Beatles rule on this podcast to give you the deep-down low-down on the latest in these big Beatle-busty boxes. I've had it for a couple of weeks now, and I have to say... Doing this episode has been a blast, as I've been able to simply sit down and listen to what was when I was younger, and still likely is, my favourite Beatle album for repeat days on end. I mean, what more could I want? I love the fabs to death, and you know, this album sees McCartney along with the other three, but particularly McCartney coming into his own and becoming the Paul that we all know and love in his solo career. It's just got a, an incredible list of songs some of my favorite all-time Beatles numbers are on this album it's always meant a lot to me it was the very first Beatles album I listened to in full in Mrs. Snyder's art class and on top of that as always there's a load of bonus content with this box set and more so than any other of the big Beatles set in recent years aka the 50th anniversary sets which this is technically simultaneously both a part and not a part of you are able to listen to all of this music evolve slash evolver before your very ears. It's a fantastic learning experience. 
The audio documentary side of this album is a truly magnificent achievement. And as cliche and douchey as it sounds, I actually did learn a shit ton of information about this album that I thought I knew inside and out. So, you know, this box set is totally something that both casual and hardcore fans can enjoy. But you know what? I feel like I'm going too deep already. There's an awful lot to talk about here today, folks. Here today. And above all else, I just just want to crack on. So with that being said, we must first get on with the housekeeping. So starting off, we've got a little bit of news for today. The first thing I want to talk about is the Paul McCartney 7 Inches Singles Collection. And firstly, I want to announce that the next few episodes after this, I am indeed going to be doing a Listen With Sam side series where I'm going to go through the entire thing. It's probably going to take about at least six episodes. But I reckon they'll be coming out in quite quick succession. It's not going to be that difficult to do. These are all songs I've heard before. A few I haven't, and they'll be more interesting, I reckon. But the thing I mostly want to talk about today in terms of the 7-inch singles collection are the um, the quality control issues. Yeah, uh, I'm sure this isn't the majority of people, but I've seen on Twitter and on Facebook making the rounds, quite a few people have had misaligned stickers, stickers covering the actual grooves of the vinyl itself, some of them not having stickers at all, as well as quite a noticeable spelling mistake for the single It's Not True being called It's Not Tur. Uh, yeah, there seems to be quite a couple of defects running throughout this release, and the only reason I bring it up is because my copy of the McCartney 123 box set also had some dire quality control issues. And these are all put out by MPL, you know? These aren't put out by a record company that is supporting Paul or anything like that. And so it's all just being done through Paul's people. And it's disconcerting, to say the least. Uh, You know, my copy of McCartney 123 had torn inner sleeves. It it had a bent, uh, dented case as it arrived. And also there were thumbprints all over, like greasy thumbprints all over my copy of McCartney 1. So this, along with the McCartney 7-inch singles box set, leads me to wonder whether there are general quality control issues at MPL. If any of you know anyone at MPL or have some insider knowledge, please drop me a line at paulmcconneypod at gmail.com because this is a story that I'd like to cover in more detail if possible. Or maybe just the three people who I've seen online and me are just the random outliers and it's all for nothing. But, you know... MPL's a big multi-million pound organisation and you'd like to think, you know, especially people paying, what's it, like 80 quid for the for the McCartney 123 box set and like $600 for the McCartney singles box set, that they would be kind of perfect and flawless, but seemingly not. Uh, you know, they're not even all checked by hand and eye before they're put out there. Seems quite odd. But yeah, if, if you have any more information on this story, please drop me a line. Then we have the first of the new Beatle books, well, McCartney books that are coming out. Uh, actually, at the time of recording, uh, Adrian Sinclair and Alan Cozin's The McCartney Legacy, Volume 1, has now been released. It came out on December 13th. It's going to be on Amazon uh, December 22nd in my neck of the woods, so I'll be picking up a copy then. But yeah, come on, folks. We all know Alan. He's on the fantastic Things We Said Today podcast with my man, Ken Michaels. He's been talking about this book on the podcast for a while. It's been in development for a while. 
Uh, volume 2 is going to be coming out around 2024, I believe. But, yep, yeah, I'm going to be picking up a copy. I'm going to be reading it. I'm going to be reviewing it here on the show. And, hey, maybe I'll even get an interview with Mr. Cozen himself. Be nice to get him back on the show after we did our live off the ground episode that was a very fun one indeed go and check out that one if you haven't already but yeah this has been one that i've been looking forward to for a while i know them both to be very good very strong very thorough writers and you know folks i love a good mccartney book that just covers his life and his work especially if it's got something new to add to the proceedings and i reckon they will because they wouldn't have released it otherwise secondly we have a new book by Luca Perazzi. Yes, folks, cast your minds back all the way to the earliest days of Paul or Nothing. And we interviewed Luca to talk about his book, Paul McCartney, The Recording Sessions. And that was a book that really did make the show what it is. You know, this this podcast would not be what it was, especially in those early days without Luca's book. And now he's coming out with another one titled Paul McCartney Music is Ideas Volume 1 and it's going to be covering uh, what is it 1970 to 1989 Stories Behind the Songs Volume 1 yep I am so looking forward to this as well Christmas has certainly come early for me with these two announcements two big new McCartney books with two people who I've really enjoyed talking with in the past I want to get Luca back on the show as well I believe he's already gone on two legs go and check out his chit chat with them there I know they'll definitely be giving him the once over in a way that would make us all proud here uh, also it turns out Luca was actually um, part of the NPL team that worked on the singles box set as well so maybe maybe Luca can explain to us why there's some of these labels are misaligned and there's spelling mistakes come on Luca help us out here <laughs> but yeah those are two big announcements that I'm very happy to come across. And finally, we've also had the premiere of Mary McCartney's Abbey Road documentary, If These Walls Could Sing. Uh, I'm looking at ways that I can watch it myself without having to illegally torrent it. do always like giving more of my money to the McCartney family. I, I still need to buy some Stella McCartney clothes, I guess. You know, have a nice hat trick there. Maybe buy one of James's albums. You know, just... You know, I've got to keep the McCartney family off the poverty line. I, that, 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 is, that is for sure. Uh, but yeah, if these walls could sing, I'm definitely going to be talking about that on the show as well in the future. So keep your ears to the ground for that as well. And now that the news is over, it's time for us to get on with the correspondence. To get in contact with the show, drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Let me know your McCartney stories. Let me know your thoughts on the show. Episodes past, episodes current, episodes future anything and everything at all i want to hear it and we do have a quick email today from sean who says hi sam wanted to drop a quick email to say how much i enjoyed the four driving rain episodes i thought you covered everything extremely well and it was refreshing to hear your thoughts on the album and ken's who was always a joy i admit it's not one of my favorite paul albums but i've re-listened to it after many years and it's gone up slightly in my estimation but then, I was looking at my best McCartney playlist on Spotify the other day, and there are three Driving Rain tracks on it. Lonely Road, Driving Rain Live, and From a Lover to a Friend. So it's more liked by me than I first thought. I was also blown away about the guy who emailed you about buying McCartney CDs in Bath. I'm 45 from a little town called St Ostwell in Cornwall, and it was physically impossible to buy McCartney CDs in the late 90s to the early 2000s. We had very few record shops here, 
and it was before the internet, so eBay was just a pipe dream then. So I too visited Bath with my then girlfriend and found a record shop in town. We went to the McCartney section and they had most of them. So I bought loads, including Ram, Wildlife, London Town, Wings Over America and more. I believe I spent about £200. I was also very excited to hear that in time you are thinking of redoing your early episodes. My favourite McCartney album is Red Rose Speedway and so I'm looking forward to hearing a deep dive into that album again. I'm listening less to other McCartney podcasts, but I'm still going strong with yours. Anyway, I just wanted to say keep up the good work, and I'm glad you're getting more downloads and moving up the chart in McCartney podcast fandom. And it's nice to hear a British perspective. Take care of yourself and have a great Christmas and New Year. Sean. Oh, thank you very much for that, Sean. That is most appreciated, my friend. That was a lovely little email there. Clearly, (laughs) back in the day, Bath was the place to be. Maybe the trucks only got so far south as Bath. That's very interesting indeed. Uh, I do remember going to Bath once, actually. It's a very idyllic town indeed. I actually had a family who lived in Land's End in Cornwall as well, not too far from you. Sadly, they're both past now, so I won't be able to ask whether they remember if there were McCartney CDs back in the day, but oh well. Also... I'm glad that you're looking forward to the idea of me redoing those first episodes, because I am. They're definitely not up to the quality of the modern Paul or Nothing episodes. Though, funnily enough, um, you mentioned Red Rose Speedway. That was the first episode where I remember trying to kick up the, the, the quality for the very first time, because I was going to have my friend Morris Bozitsky on the show, who ended up being on the London Town episode. And I remember wanting to do a really good show to like impress him, and he couldn't do it. And that meant I just had this high-quality show ready to go and that sort of spiraled into the show we have today you know incrementally and of course thank you for your kind words about the driving rain quadrilogy Uh, i really threw my heart and soul into that and it's nice to get a little bit of validation on that front as well in return again thank you so much have a very merry christmas have a happy hanukkah and a wonderful kwanzaa your kind words are a great way to end the year thank you once again And there is just another little email that did make me chuckle out loud that I wanted to read out. And it's from an an anonymous person simply listed as One Man Clapping. It reads, Please complete this thought. Robert Rodriguez, Mark Lewison and Jeffrey Giuliano walk into a pub or walk into a bar. Keep up the great work. One Man Clapping. (laughs) Okay. I love this one, folks. I mean, this one got my mind racing. I am going to be spending all of my time between this episode and the next trying to think of a sufficiently funny answer. But more importantly, I would like to see you all help me with this one. Let's try and complete that joke. Uh, Robert Rodriguez, Mark Lewison and Jeffrey Giuliano all walk into a bar. And what do they say? Come on, there has to be something in the format of the three men walking to a thing and funny things are said. It has to exist. It just has to. So if you've got any ideas, drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Let's not upset the one man clapping. For other socials, please follow us on our Twitter page, which is at McCartneypod. Check out the blog, which is paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Part up again, Paul, and I think all the Paul McCartney podcast. Uh, of course, YouTube is the place where you can find our sister show, Macca in Your Attic, where we take a deep dive into Macca and Beetle memorabilia with a different guest each time. I've got a, quite a few guests lined up for the new year, actually, so keep your ears to the ground for that one. Also, if you want to help out the show directly in a way that takes less than 30 seconds, please leave us 
some form of interaction, you know, a like, a thumbs up, a tick, some stars, a comment, share the show with friends, physically share with, you know, on a group, digitally, whatever you can do, it's always greatly appreciated, you know the drill by now, and finally, if you want to help out the show directly, if you want to see the show grow, if you want to help me get new equipment or new products to review, then please consider checking out the Patreon page. It's the place where you, the public, can support independent content creators such as myself. But it's not just a gimme. You do get your money's worth. You get two days early access to all episodes of Paul or Nothing Completed. You get one week early access to all episodes of Mac It In Your Attic. You get instant access to the Paul or Nothing video feed. So if I do anything recorded, especially with a guest, that will go up unedited immediately with visuals to the patreon so you know you can you can technically see some episodes weeks or even months in advance depending on when they're meant to be coming out you also get access to all the scripts i do for the show lost episodes of paul or nothing deleted episodes of paul or nothing other random little beetle related podcasts i've done back in the past i also do links to all of my guest appearances on other shows and finally there is the paul or nothing patreon vlog where i do a new episode exclusively for the patreon i try to do it every week it normally ends up being every couple of weeks but i do a little bonus episode where we just go through a topic that i might not be able to fit in on the show and rather fittingly, with this week having two new book announcements, uh, on the last episode I actually went through my entire Beetle book collection, albeit not with Mr. Beetle Books himself. I also want to give a quick shout out to our two new patrons, Stephen Lanham and Isabella Diaz. Thank you both so much for putting your money where your mouth is. You know, it's always a very humbling experience indeed, knowing that people would want to pay for this show and you know, especially during these harsh financial times we're all going through. It really much touches my heart. It greatly motivates me as well. It's a, it, it's a fantastic email to get first thing in the morning. So I just throw myself at your feet and give you thanks. It's, you know, thank you so much, folks. And before we start today's episode, I just want to give a quick shout out to the entire Paul or Nothing family, the people who make this show possible, people including the two newcomers, Stephen Lanham, Isabella Diaz, as well as Stephanie Bradley, Louise Overberg, Austin Rapp, John Carp, Brian Brigman, Annie McNeil, Percy Thrillington, David Stabersky, Andy Cochran, Guy Jenkinson, Nancy Twoey, Christopher Newman, Mrs. P, Roderick Harper, Chris Atkinson, Bowie or Bowie, I'm never going to remember bro, I'm so sorry, Richard Binnington, Teresa Brader, Cheryl McCoy, Lou DiLonardo, Robert A. Carabelli, Warren Butson, Cheryl McCoy and Matt Phillips. Right folks, as I said, there is a lot to talk about today. Let's crack on with a bit of Revolver. Turn off your mind, relax and float downstream. Cause I'm the tax man. Yeah, I'm the tax man. Oh, look at all the lovely people. If the rain comes, they run and hide their heads. We all live in a yellow submarine. Good day, sunshine. Got to get you into my life. So, what exactly is this revolver box set then? Well, the Revolver Special Edition slash the Revolver Super Deluxe Edition is an expanded reissue of the 1966 Beatles album, Revolver. 
It was released on the 28th of October 2022, thus highlighting how long it's taken this episode to come out. And it's been brought to the helm by Giles Martin, the son of famed Beatles producer and producer of Revolver, George Martin. And I just want to quickly run through what you get in this box set, because the story of how this box set came to be is basically the story of the stereo mix, which is what we're first going to talk about. But you could either get a 5CD or a 4LP plus one 7-inch in the box set. That's what you got. Both would also include a 100-page book. There was also an abridged version of, of, of the book as well. I think that would be with the CD. We all knew this was going to be coming out at some point. Majals had always kind of been hinting at it for a while, but there were certain things holding it back that we're going to get back to shortly. We were teased with uh, little snippets like uh, Taxman was released on Spotify, the uh, Yellow Submarine early demo was released on Spotify as well, and there was a lot of hype for this one, and for good reason, you know, this is Revolver, it's most people's favourite Beatles album, it's off-cited as the best of their work, and come on, who wouldn't be excited for this? I know I certainly was. Uh, This set actually did pretty well, all things considered, Uh, In the UK album charts, it reached number two. On the US Billboard 200, it reached number four. On on the Scottish album charts, actually, it got to number one, number two in New Zealand, as well as uh, Australia and Austria. got number three in Ireland and the Netherlands. And number four in Japan, which is actually pretty darn good, considering that this is an album that's nearing its 60th year of existence. Yeah, come on. This is such an important release. We all knew it was. But let's talk about the first part of it. And starting things off, we're going to tackle the easiest part of this box set to discuss, which is the stereo version of the album. Of course, this is the version of the album that the majority of us will be most familiar with. And therefore, it's the one that I feel like I'll also have the least to talk about. But hey, I can't just say it sounds good and leave it at that. So uh, excuse me, as I, the man with a notorious tin ear for new mixes and masters and audio updates, you know, fumbles through a review that is going to mostly focus on those aspects. However, it should be pointed out that being that this is the stereo mix, uh, you know, and indeed the first thing you'll hear in this collection, and that the stereo version is by far the most common mix ever to be circulated, especially since the CD versions and the digital versions came out, that this should be regarded as the main product, the main selling point of this collection. All the bonus stuff, that's fun, but the remix and updating this album was the main focus of Giles Martin's efforts. But before we get into how it sounds, let's quickly touch on why this whole mix came to be and how it came to you know, be released when it was. Because as we know, these 50th anniversary box sets uh, that stopped being called 50th anniversary box box sets after Let It Be was delayed, they all began with Pepper. And as it turns out, this was not by accident. It's not like the people putting these box sets together thought, oh my god, we forgot Please Please Me through Revolver. No. The reason the Pepper box set came out when it did was, A, it was the 50th anniversary of Pepper, and Pepper's probably the most commercially well-known Beatles album and therefore it would make sense to start with something big like that to guarantee sales but also because Pepper was when you know the Beatles really started to expand the scope of their music 
their control of the studio, their use of modern day technology. Yes, that, that does happen a lot on this album, on Revolver, but you know, it really got exponential as they moved forward through 67. And so it made sense in terms of what Giles would be able to do with the material. He would be able to separate and isolate certain parts of Pepper that he wouldn't be able to do on, say, Revolver. It turns out, actually, Revolver was mooted for earlier in this series. It was going to come out, I'm not sure how early, but certainly earlier. And the thing is, this is because Revolver still has that far more rudimentary four-track recording and the mixing techniques of the pre-Pepper, the pre-Pepper era did prove to be somewhat of an obstacle to Giles's vision of what an updated revolver could and should be. When asked only recently about a possible revolver, Giles said the following, I don't think the demixing is good enough at this moment in time. And I just think you have to have a good reason to do it. And that reason has to be sonic improvement. There's no point doing it for the sake of it. Although I can't really answer in much more detail as I haven't looked that properly. However, in a stroke of good luck, the issue of being able to demix and separate the disparate elements of the tracks was eventually solved. Not by himself, though. You know, there's that phrase there where if you if you raise the tide, you know, you raise everyone else up with you. And it was in the Beatle camp, at least, and it came in the form of none other than Mr. Peter Jixon and his Titanic docuseries Disney's The Beatles Get Back on Disney Plus, as Giles details here. While working on Get Back, we developed this tech where we could demix stuff, which is basically separating multi-tracks out, so it was really a technological breakthrough which allowed us to do it. He continues... The dialogue editor, Emile Delaray, was doing a really good job of removing the guitars from the dialogue, and I said to him, let's have a look at Revolver. Can you separate the guitar, bass and drums? He did a rough pass on it, and it was so much better than anything I've ever heard. I said, okay, we need to work on this, and it got to a stage where it became extraordinarily good. Martin and his team haven't given away all the details on exactly how this borderline magical demixing process works, but we know that it involves the same elements of AI and machine learning that allow Jackson to separate the dialogue from the music in said docu-series. Giles did, though, explain the results. It has to learn what the sound of John Lennon's guitar is. For instance, the more information you can give it, the better it becomes. So we're playing through the tapes just looking for bits where someone played a guitar when no one else is playing, and that's how the computer can go, oh, okay, this is what I'll extract. But all that means that when people listen to a record, the band don't have to be on each other's lap. He continues, On Taxman, I can take off the guitar, I can take off the bass, and then I can even separate the snare drum and the kick drum as well. And they sound like the snare drum and the kick drum. There's no hint of guitar on there, even though they'd been baked together on those master tapes. And I don't know how it's done. It's like I'm giving them a cake and they're giving me flour, eggs and milk and some sugar. So yeah, it's safe to say that this is basically just magic. Also, I just want to quickly touch on the idea of stereo versus mono, because in my own experience, the whole stereo mono debate and how it relates to this release, the only point of comparison I'll really have is my own original copy of Revolver on vinyl. You know, there'd be very little point in me comparing my new 2022 vinyl to previous streaming versions of this album uh, so my tatty old copies already have to go off and duh 
Of course, the newer disc, regardless of any updates to the mix, uh, will sound better. Said copy, like my old Let It Be vinyl, is hardly the best representation of what a reasonable quality version of Revolver would have sounded like, but it is the only baseline I have to work with. For this comparison, I did go back and listen to said original copy and previous streaming versions, and neither of them sounded bad or anything, but I don't know. Now that I've gone through the looking glass, there was a certain flatness to the whole thing. Uh, And on the vinyl, specifically, the crackle had risen to beyond a reasonable nostalgic level. Also, I just want to point out that my speaker system is hardly the most stereo-friendly setup. It's one large speaker situated in the base of my record player. And whilst it still has two outputs, it's still mostly just one sound, uh, you know, rather than two separated speakers that you can put your ears up to. Uh, this may have something to do with my thoughts on the mono mix of the album that we'll get to shortly. But yeah, anyway, after all that preamble, let's get into the 2022 stereo mix of Revolver properly. Actually, the first thought I had going into this was, is it even possible to improve this album? Surely not, right? It's pretty damn perfect. Well, i got to say, folks, they actually have gone and done the impossible, because as far as I can tell... Of course, this is a superior mix to what has come before. I mean, Giles has never let us down before, and with these advances in technology, it is allowing us to have the best possible presentation of this album. How is this shown, though, I hear you ask? Well, to my layman, philistine, uneducated ear, this is quite obviously the more perspicuous-sounding album. You can tell that the AI learning and demixing has indeed done its job, as every single element in every single song sounds far more crisp and easily discernible from each other compared to the original mix. You know, if you want to focus on the guitar, you can. If you want to focus on the bass, the drums, the vocals, you can, and it's easier than ever. The phrase that Giles used, that they're not on each other's lap, is very apt indeed. And in that sense, it also sounds far more modern, in that the whole sound is far less garbled and primitive. Like, this sounds like they recorded Revolver in 68 or 69, but they do it in a way where it doesn't betray the original recordings by making them sound too updated or anything. You know, like the best bras out there, this mix lifts and separates. It is a real boast. This album is far less crowded and muddled. Like, the way I was able to really clarify this was with my earphones. Again, it's not the best way to listen to this album, especially with my little tin pot Bluetooth ones. But, you know, you can take out an earphone and focus on one side of the song. You can appreciate instrumentation that I was never really able to hear before and there are treasures like this to be found across the whole album what's more is that it's safe to say that revolver now just straight up rocks harder than it ever has before in particular the guitars are far sharper and brighter than i ever really would have expected you know they really are a joy to listen to they're harder they're edgier you know This really emphasises them being a rock band, even though we have things like Yellow Submarine and Eleanor Rigby on this album. Uh, And, you know, for the fact that such a fool like me can clearly see something like that just shows how well of a job they actually did. Oh, and before I forget, this isn't the most hot take or anything. I've seen this in several other reviews going into this, but, you know, Ringo's drums are a delight on this mix. 
you you really can truly appreciate just how integral he was to the band. Like, oh, his his playing on this album is so perfect, and it's displayed equally as perfect on this mix. This smorgasbord of compliments can be said for the vocals too, as the fabs sound utterly angelic in this crystal clear presentation. Uh, the voices pop in a way that I'd never heard before again, and it just really lends a far more joyous air to the proceedings. Also, going back to the idea of listening to this album with headphones, aka the only way I could really experience the studio effect, uh, you really can tell just how much work was put into the more experimental numbers on this album. Like, personally, I say the stereo version, as heard here, is almost certainly preferable, in terms of the experience at least, with certain songs like I'm Only Sleeping and Tomorrow Never Knows, because they are fully able to utilise that stereo space and technology and use it as part of the musical canvas they're working with. Like hearing those backwards guitars move from one ear to the other, it's a wonderfully trippy experience. Also, before I wrap up this hastily thrown together segment and move on to the more hard-hitting topics, I do have one vapid thing that I do really appreciate about this particular stereo copy of the album, and this is the same with the Lady B box set. I actually have a fully pristine, shiny, blemish-free album sleeve for Revolver, something I greatly appreciate. Like, that's part of the cost for me, and I was glad to eat it up. So yeah, rather like the Let It Be box set, despite my utter inability to ever really hear any differences between such mixes, I can honestly say with confidence that this is easily the best way to listen to Revolver. Giles Martin and his team have truly achieved the impossible when it comes to how they've managed to bring this album into existence. And again, if a fool like me can see slash hear slash experience it, then God only knows how amazing this must sound to you experts out there. Honestly, the best takeaway I have from this, and this is a takeaway that will leave Apple and their investors very happy indeed, is that this truly has me excited for the up-to-date mixes we will slash may get for future Beatle albums. Okay, now that we've had a lot of fun panning from the right channel to the left and enjoying vocals and drums in the centre, it is now time for us to discuss, depending on your point of view, the ugly duckling slash true artisan way of listening to records. Yes, folks, it's now time for us to discuss the first of the juicy bonus albums to come in addition to the 2022 stereo mix of Revolver, which is the 2022 mono mix of Revolver. You know, for years, I've always heard about mono albums and read several debates and posts and threads where people discuss the pros and cons of each format. And I gotta admit, I really wasn't interested in it at all. I was more interested in people's passion about it, I guess. And in terms of my own experiencing of it and collecting, I was certainly not going to spend the extra money on the rarer, more expensive mono mixes when I still didn't have regular vinyl copies of things like Off the Ground or Driving Rain. But now that I have this box set, I've been able to experience a wonderful chance to get to know the medium. And I thought, just before I give my opinions on the music, that we'd have a little look at just what mono is. Hit it, Johnny. Right, for those not in the know, mono is short for monophonic, meaning one sound, I think in Greek or Latin or something. So, as opposed to stereo, where different sounds will come out of different speakers, creating the stereophonic effect, mono does away with all of that and just has it all coming out of one speaker or the same sounds coming out of both speakers. Now, from what I've come to understand over the years, the Beatles, 
especially once they started to gain control of the control room and had more input in how their music was mixed, gave the lion's share of their attentions to the mono mixes and generally weren't around when the studio mixes were being prepared. In fact, George Martin says as much when he explained the process, stating, Today, most people are already familiar with the stereo version, but in those days, stereo equipment was very primitive and not very popular. The Beatles and I spent three weeks mixing the mono version of an album. After it was finished, they left it to Jeff Emmerich and myself to mix the stereo version, which we did in four days. So, the mono version was the version the Beatles quote-unquote authorised. And Jeff Emmerich himself basically said the same thing, and I quote, Stereo took a long time to establish itself in England. The best copy of Sgt Pepper is the mono version, because we spent three weeks mixing that, and the stereo we mixed in only two and a half days. Nobody realises that all the actual effort went into the mono mix, because we never monitored in stereo. It was all from one speaker, that's how we all heard it. Part of why the Fabs did this in the first place is because they knew their music would inevitably be presented in mono on the radio and that most of their fans listened to their singles and albums on transistor radios or cheap single-speaker mono record sets. The majority of music throughout the 1960s was presented in mono for these very reasons. And don't forget, this was at a time when stereo was far more of a high-end luxury commodity and was reserved for more grown-up technically-minded, musically-educated hi-fi enthusiasts who like to listen to classical albums and mood music rather than fans of pop. So, it totally makes sense that the Beatles would have focused on those mono mixes. It went with the territory of their art form. And again, after all of this setup, what do I think of this mono mix? Well, in terms of the box set and value for money, I was kind of torn down the middle about how I felt about the mono mix being included as a quote-unquote bonus, especially at the start before I really dive into the whole thing. I mean, I couldn't help but compare it to the Let It Be box where we got the Glyn Johns mix of the album as the second disc. As a Beatles fan, that was essentially a brand new album with several new songs and several new mixes, and it instantly felt far more of a valuable and worthwhile inclusion. I hate to say it, it just was. You know, aside from where the music comes out of the speakers and a few details that we'll go into shortly, the mono mix of Revolver is just the same music that we get on the stereo. Which kind of felt like a bit of a cheat. You know, we are basically paying for the same thing twice that only Deep Cut Beatles fans would have been able to appreciate at all. And I get that. That's what this box set was targeted at, who it was targeted at. And the only people that would care would be those uber fans. But still, even now, there's a part of me that can't help but feel like Giles and the team at Apple were desperate to continue the tradition of having, you know, four discs or four and a half discs of bonus material to justify the high price. And so they thought, ah, fuck it, just throw the mono in. You know, they didn't throw in monos for the other ones maybe some did maybe some didn't but it wasn't advertised as such that you know i mean yeah we didn't get mono discs with the let it be or the abbey road box sets because there are no true official uh, mono mixes of those albums but still you know getting the glyn johns mix of the album feels a lot cooler than just getting the same album with the same album artwork again eh, does this set a precedent for Future releases in this series, are we just going to get mono versions of Please Please Me Through Rubber Soul as our bonus audio? 
I mean, sure, it will be nice, particularly if you get every set, but you can't tell me that people wouldn't also prefer a live album being thrown in there or something similar. Or, you know, is this just, or is this just all a symptom of the fact that as we move back through time, we're going to be coming towards more efficient, less bonus audio-y, less deleted songs kind of a beat recording environment. And, you know, the bonus Sesho Studio outtakes albums will become the live albums, you know, and we'll have to get a mono and a live album with barely any outtakes. I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. But the idea that we don't have as much content as the rest of the other box sets is already apparent on Revolver, so it's only going to get worse as we go on. Anyway, conversely, there is another part of me that feels completely the other way, and it is largely the dominant part of me now. Don't worry, folks, I'm not going to rag on the mono anymore. In fact, quite the opposite. First of all, as I mentioned earlier, my speaker system is just one big central speaker. And so for me to have a mono version of the album means that I actually have an appropriate album for my setup. I know this could just totally be applicable to me, but I'm willing to wager a lot of you out there are like me and would rather spend your money on the vinyl rather than a proper setup. So if anything, the fact that the mono sounds as good as it does, which I'll expand upon shortly, it really takes the sting out of the cost of the set as a whole. You know, this was a fantastic opportunity for me to explore the world of mono and find out for myself what all the fuss is about. And that's a unique experience that only this box set can offer me in terms of the currently available Beatles box sets. Actually, that being said, mono albums are usually quite prohibitively expensive, at least compared to regular vinyl. And so to have this included in the set is actually quite a bargain when you think about it. So that's another huge plus. But the biggest boon has to be what it does for me as a collector. Again, this could be completely subjective, but I'm sure there are loads of you out there, again, like me, who did not own a mono record until this set came out, or at least amongst the younger collectors. I'm sure I'm sounding quite silly right now to a lot of you old-timers. But you know what? This box set is very special to me because of that. You know, because of the Revolver Deluxe 2022 set, I now understand mono as an art form in much more detail, and I will totally be getting more mono records because of it. And so, you know what? I couldn't be happier with that. My bank balance isn't going to be happy with it, but I am. So yeah, to summarise its inclusion and existence, there are pros and cons to the inclusion of the mono mix in this set. But the more I think about it, especially when I ask myself what else could they have added, I am mostly leaning toward this as being a pretty solid inclusion. Though it will feel less special as the other monos are included in other sets. But then again, again, I will also have other monos to make up for it. So let's stop moaning and get into the mix itself. So yeah, what do I think about it? Well, I hate to be one of those people, and I'm doing the finger quotes there, but this mono mix is better. It just is. Straight up. No word of a lie. I'm just tempted to leave it there and leave it up to you, especially the uh, people who know mono in detail. But yeah, gotta pad out this runtime, eh, folks? (laughs) No, but seriously, this mono mix was so fucking eye-opening, it was unreal. 
as much as I enjoyed the new stereoscopic experience that I got from the stereo version of Revolver, I gotta say, ridiculous as this sounds, listening to this mono mix was as close as I'll ever get to listening to this album for the first time again. It's as close as I'll get to listening to this album in Mrs. Snyder's art class on my iPod Nano that my friend illegally burned onto there for me. And that's pretty special. I'm not going to say it was totally different and that it expanded my mind to the fourth level of reality or whatever, but it was certainly a very different one, to say the least. Of course, there are several literal uh, audio differences between the takes on the stereo and the mono, differences that I will again detail shortly, but just the way the music itself was presented was a trip. I mean, a lot of this might be down to my inexperience with the format, but hearing the songs on Revolver in the way the Beatles intended just felt right. Everything felt far more powerful and forceful and brought up in the mix, but not in an obnoxious way. And everything felt far more cohesive without the separation between outputs. You know, the whole thing just felt a lot more proud and it grabbed my attention in a very unexpected manner. Um, you know, ironically, despite it being a more singular mix across the album, instruments, vocals and sound effects popped in ways that I did not expect. Like, I know it sounds completely stupid, as it probably is, but this is how I was expecting the new stereo mix to sound. Everything in every song was somehow, for me at least, far more identifiable and pick-outable, to coin a terrible phrase. It felt separated in a totally natural way, and I totally get why the Beatles focused on this as the main fruit of their efforts. The whole album was even more crisp and clear than it was on the last disc uh, and on any streaming platform. And, my God, does it make the band sound ever more modern than it did, especially on the stereo mix? Furthermore... I know I said that the new stereo mix allowed the album to rock like it never did before, but this rocked even harder. The guitars were just so bright and shining. Like, every single sound was just so much more delectable than it ever had been presented before. I didn't think it could be done, but it did. Conclusively, if you're able to listen to this version, which you totally can, because this has all been available on streaming for weeks now, then do so. This is... More so than the last definitive version, uh, you know, definitive way to listen to Revolver. This is the definitive version and the definitive way to listen to Revolver. And I would be saying this regardless of whether the Beatles preferred it or not. This is better than the stereo mix. Again, this has got new album syndrome and I can totally still uh, spend far too much time praising Giles Martin for his work on the 2022 mix, which does sound better than previous stereo mixes. But... This is my personal favourite way to experience the album. And because of that, any misgivings that I had about this album's inclusion in the set have now entirely been forgotten. Not only that, but again, I am now so excited to experience the rest of their discography on mono. And yes, everyone, I now have indeed become a mono snob, but the experience was so enjoyable. I'm not, it's not earth shattering or anything, but it was just so much fun that I don't even care. Anyway, seeing as how I mentioned in passing certain differences between the mixes, I thought I might clarify in detail as to what these differences uh, you know, between the stereo and the mono actually are. I mean, not all of these are all that significant, but 
they gave the album a fresh edge that cumulatively made the experience as unique and as special as it was. Some of them are just about timing or levels in the mix, but some are straight up altogether new parts that were honestly quite mind-blowing, at least on their own. However, I was sure I was only going to pick up the obvious ones, and so thankfully I found a couple of solid gold resources available online that gave me all of the information about what to look out for. So with that in mind, let's just quickly blast through all of these, as there are more than I expected. Uh, with Taxman, the mono mix is more powerful, with all of the instrumental tracks louder. The Cowbell, which is not loud in either mix, starts after the 5% appear too small line in mono, and later at on the Taxman in the second refrain in the stereo. The guitar is also a little louder in the countdown intro. For Eleanor Rigby, the double tracking in the stereo continues into Ellen in the first verse, which is a quite a glaring mistake. The lead vocal, perhaps too prominent in both, sounds far stronger in mono. Now we come to I'm Only Sleeping, and this is the one that I spotted right away, as the differences really are stark. Um, I'm Only Sleeping on mono is easily the go-to version of this song, and it will be the one that I choose to listen to on any streaming platform moving forward. Why? Well, it has more backwards guitar, that's why. Uh, the backwards guitar effect is heard in different places in all four of the various mixes of this song, making it one of the Beatles songs with the most versions out there. And the lead guitar track is mixed differently throughout the solo and at the end. On the mono version, we have the following. Uh, on verse 2, uh, the backwards guitar starts at uh, We're at such a speed and there's no need. There's more backwards guitar on staring at the ceiling. And the backwards guitar starts immediately after the last word, sleeping. There are three instances, folks, of more backwards guitar on this song. And it's so fucking cool. On Love You 2, the mono has a much longer fade by about 13 seconds something that is gravely missing from the stereo version, and I'll talk about it in one of the bonus tracks later. Also, this mono mix uh, is compiled of mixes with and without automated double tracking. Um, the details are not given uh, specifically uh, in either Lewison's book or in Howlett's book in the box set. Uh, rather curious indeed. Then in Here, There and Everywhere, the last line in the lead voice is You'll be there and everywhere. In the mono, the backing voice is heard to sing, I'll be there instead. Um, it is there, though. Uh, also, the vocal backing is missing in mono on the last chord. For Yellow Submarine, the guitar comes in right away in mono, but uh, after the in the town, that's when it starts in the stereo. At the start of verse 3, a splash effect is faded away quickly in the mono as the vocal starts, but continues uh, over the As We Live A Life Of Ease in the stereo. Johnny's heard repeating the vocal after the first line of verse 3, Life Of Ease, in mono, but not until the next line, All We Need, in the stereo. The last line of verse 3 sounds like In Our Yellow Club Marine on the mono, but Slub Marine on the stereo. The official lyric is just Submarine, of course. With She Said, She Said, the mono mix is seemingly a lot more powerful, although the rhythm track can be heard fading down during vocal lines and back up in between. With Good Day Sunshine, the bass drum that is missing at the very end of the stereo is present in the mono. For Angel Bird Can Sing, the editing adds the instrumental ending from a different take. 
Also in the mono, it has louder hand claps and the guitar seemed to drop a little more in volume during the verses. In For No One, the vocals just straight up come across as far more prominent. With Dr. Robert, again, the mix for the vocals is a lot louder. The guitars are quieter again, and the rhythm section is also a lot more powerful. Also on the US mono edit, so another variation, um, the song ends a little later with John going, OK, Herb. Um, also, the well, well, well parts are mixed differently than on the UK mono. With I Want to Tell You, the piano is considerably more present and you can, you know, it's a lot stronger. You can definitely pick up on it more. With Got to Get You Into My Life, the mono has a noticeably longer fade, that uh, it has a louder bass and percussion. The brass on the mono was also augmented by lifting the brass sound from the master and overdubbing it onto the mix. That move was not done on the stereo, and the stereo also has different vocals at the fade. And finally, with Tomorrow Never Knows, the vocal is louder and clearer over all of the effects. Uh, the fade is slightly longer and has more piano, and the effects are faded up differently than on the stereo. Uh, also, just the tape loops just straight up sound ever so slightly different. Maybe it's just a, a different like processing sound or something like that. Uh, also, the stereo has a feedback whistle in the Love is All, Love is Every One, whilst the mono does not. Then we have Paperback Writer, of course, one of the singles from this period, the quote-unquote non-album singles. The mono mix is far more powerful with louder drums and a compressed dynamic range. Also, Ringo's drum tapping during the a cappella Paperback Writer segment can be heard a little more clearly in the mono fading up a few taps before the guitars come back in. Then with Rain, the master tape has backwards vocals at the end, overdone from another take. The backwards line is when the rain comes, but for the mono, it has if the rain comes. So you know, lots of slight differences there. And that's the big takeaway I've personally had from learning about mono, is that it's not about big massive differences or remixes or anything like that it's about dozens upon dozens of tiny variations and alterations that create a far more unique experience than one might have ever expected a lot of this does come down to our familiarity with these albums like uh, would i be able to tell massive differences between say like you know thriller or dark side of the moon or Appetite for Destruction? Probably not. But because it's the Beatles and because, you know, I imagine you out there listening right now listen to them over and over and over again, it's these exact subtle variations that are just oh so fascinating. And they've drawn me in. They've got me hook, line and sinker. I'm a mono boy now. Let's just move on. <laughs> yeah, that uh, concludes this far too drawn out look at Revolver and Mono. Fuck uh, up. I've been talking so long, I feel like I've got mono, but let's press on, shall we? Right, now that we have had a double dose of Revolver, it is time for us to talk about the truly bonus disc in this set, the Revolver Singles, aka Paperback Writer and Rain. Of course, these were recorded at the same time in, during the same sessions as the rest of Revolver, so obviously it makes sense that they were going to be included in some form, and they were included in some form. But the real question I have to ask 
with this particular inclusion is a pretty darn simple one. Why is this a 7-inch disc and not a 12-inch one? This is going to sound really petty, especially since, you know, Pepper, uh, the White Album, and Abbey Road didn't contain any singles, but the, the Let It Be one, the one that I have, did, and that was a 12-inch. Why do I care? I don't know, it just looks cooler, it's a little more symmetrical and a bit singular in its vision, and it it's just nicer to have. I've started buying 12 inches now, they're better, there, I said it. It's nice that in a set with four other 12 inch discs, that there would also be a single of the same size. I mean, the additional 7 inch just looks so random and thrown in compared to the rest of the set. What's worse is that when you're putting the box set back into its fancy slip case, box case, it just ends up rattling around in there loosely. Not like very loosely, like it physically moves around, but you know, it just kind of sits in there without feeling fixed and safe. You can insert the single into one of the main albums, but that just kind of feels cheap and like it's going to risk damaging both of the sleeves. I don't know. It's not like they they would have wasted the space on the 12 inch. There would still be two songs per side, and that's perfectly acceptable in the format. And it just would have made a, a lovely match and made completely anally retentive people like me all the happier. I guess, you know, I've always just preferred 12 inch singles, and in this case, my bias is perfectly valid. I'm not going to hear any different. But it gets worse. On top of all that, this bonus disc is, like the rest of the set, rather restricted, at least in comparison with the Let It Be bonus disc. With that one, you have the unreleased Glyn John mixes of Across the Universe and I Mean Mine on one side, and the 2022 mixes of the single versions of Get Back and Don't Let Me Down, meaning that both sides of the EP were different and unique, and three of them were completely different mixes in terms of like actual content. You know, they had new stuff on them that you couldn't get anywhere else on the main records. And yeah, obviously you can't get We Can Work It Out and, and Rain on Revolver, you know what I mean. Now, with this one, we get a reflection single. You know, on one side, we have We Can Work It Out and Rain in Stereo, and on one side, we have We Can Work It Out and Rain in Mono. So, you know, you could look at, look, look, look at it in the sense that it's nice how it mirrors the two main discs of the set and that you have two complete revolver session collections, one stereo, one mono. But that's really about it. Again, this just highlights how there really isn't any unreleased material from these sessions. There's no Leave My Kitten Alone or What's the New Mary Jane here. And there is certainly not any other single songs from these sessions left over to do anything else with this space. And it is kind of obvious. The only positive I do really have for this set, aside from the fact that, again, the monos are the better mixes. And it is just cool to have more mono content in this box set. Uh, and, you know, aside from the fact that I really do enjoy the songs themselves, because of course I do, I do enjoy the packaging for it. Like, rather than the plain black sleeve that we got with the Let It Be box, we do at least get a faithful recreation of a proper 1960s or mid-60s Beatles single with the green and white packaging. I mean, I've already got a lot of them already, but none of them are made with such high-quality material and are so unblemished. Um, I do really feel like I'm I'm ripping on this single thing here, um, but yeah, I'm really not going to be listening to it all that much, <laughs> if I'm completely honest. It's nice to have another copy of these songs and yada, yada, yada. I, I, I just wish it was in 12-inch and maybe that they would have put something different on it. I don't know what they could possibly have done. 
I know they probably couldn't have done anything else, but it's definitely not as good as the Let It Be single. Oh, yeah, of course, uh, after all of that bitching, I suppose I should talk about the music itself and how it sounds. Well, basically, of course they sound great, of course they do, they're brilliant songs, and you know what, for details, please just refer to the previous two sections on stereo and mono, as there are no major differences between the two on this disc. Anyway, 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 now that we've gone through all of the official material that we've already heard a million times over, it is time for us to come to the meat and potatoes of this episode, aka the new stuff, the bonus material, the session material. As we all know, this is the real selling point of any of these collections, regardless of what Giles puts his you know, focus into. And the scope of this content has only been expanded and gotten more ambitious you know, as time has gone on, and Apple really has slowly realised just how ravenous we are for this kind of stuff. Officially, these discs are called the session material, even though it does contain demos from outside of any of the official sessions. But yeah, the point is, is that this is all of the stuff that we never got to hear, mostly. And in this set, we get alternative takes, different arrangements, new vocals, takes with added elements or removed ones, as well as just a bunch of cool stuff that is the icing on the revolver cake. And it is this section, this content, that makes this box stand out a little more from the others. And again, it you know, I've mentioned this twice already, it feels a little more restrictive and they've had to work around that by changing the, the, the kind of the, the ethos of these bonus discs. You know, all previous Beatles box sets had alternate takes as part of their bonus content, of course, but you also got a little more than that. Uh, with Pepper, you got a full-on remix. With the White Album and Abbey Road, you got unreleased songs. And with Let It Be, you got unreleased songs and, and covers and stuff like that. So when you come to this album, it has no bonus or cut material and no real remix to speak of. And all you are left with is alternate takes. Now, this does mean that the Revolver box set had to shift gears, and to the benefit of many, I'm sure, it means it's a far more detailed and in-depth in its scope of translating the songwriting process to the listener, which in itself is absolutely fascinating. You know, never in so much depth have we heard Beatles songs go from uh, creation to completion. You know, if you include the final versions on either the stereo or the mono, you know, you can have up to five different versions of some of these songs. And you really do get to experience the nitty gritty of how these songs changed over time, why they changed and the continual work the Beatles were putting into them. But it's also far less superficially and immediately gratifying. You know, this box that will not introduce anyone to a Beatles song that they may not have heard before. It will not offer anything new to anyone who is already into their session takes, you know, and it doesn't have a, a new mix that no one's heard before. So that means that this is far more of an educational tool than something outright, quote unquote, fun. You know, like Ken Michaels, for example, I'm always drawn to the new content and the songs that I haven't heard before. You know, take the new seven inch box set. Did I re-listen to Another Day and Oh Woman, Oh Why, you know, several times. No, I went straight to the mixes and the songs that I'd never heard before on streaming, like Back On My Feet or Long Leather Coat. And this thinking, this opinion might be a little simple. 
and dare I say, emblematic of a more casual listener. You know, at the end of the day, I am looking for content that I can overload on and playing on constant repeat in my own personal Beatles playlist. And that's something that you don't get as much of in this box set. You know, a lot of these takes are minor alterations. Uh, some of them are so minor that you really can't even notice. Um, you know, there's, there's stuff on the mono disc that I found to be more engaging and more revelatory than a lot of these bonus tracks. And that is a little disconcerting. Um, but I do want to be clear, this double disc, the double vinyl that, 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 that you get in this box set is totally worth your money. It is worth the price of quote-unquote admission, as it were. But it's not as re-listenable as some of the bonus content on the other box sets. You know, I find myself far more inclined to listen to all of these takes in order as presented to me as opposed to finding some choice cuts that I can just add to my overall Beatle head canon. It is more homework in that regard. You know, you, when you listen to a lot of these bonus takes, you feel like the people at Apple and Giles are more trying to teach you something and try and explain a process to you rather than just go, ah, oh, how cool is this? And don't get me wrong, there is a lot of just straight up cool stuff on this box set, but... It's not the same. This isn't the same kind of beast that what we've got before. And again, as we get closer to 1962, the Beatles don't have unused songs. They don't really have as many incomplete takes. And they certainly weren't creating enough songs to warrant completely different arrangements and instrumentations. Um, so it's a different kind of beast. And you should go in with that mindset. You really should. Also, just before we begin, I just wanted to point out that there is a massive sin of omission in this box set. There is not another version, another take, another remix of Good Day Sunshine. There are no different renditions here. Apparently, from what I've heard second and third hand, there just aren't any interesting enough takes of Good Day Sunshine to warrant an inclusion on the track listing. But regardless of whether the man thinks there's not a good enough take to include... It just feels wrong. Uh, even if Good Day Sunshine was pretty much fully formed by the time he got to the studio and there aren't any major differences, it still would have been nice to include something. Especially when there are three or four versions of the same song on offer here. Still, Howlett's notes in the book do still provide some previously unknown information regarding the recording of the song, and it does somewhat make up for the lack of any audio. But still, again... Something would have been better. Not George Harrison's something, of course. Bad pun there. Also, I just wanted to touch on the fact that we do get so many takes of these songs. Uh, it's going to be a real uh, barometer, a real litmus test for what kind of Beatle fan you are, especially if you you know have this on vinyl and you're not listening to it on streaming where you can skip it. I've already heard a uh, story secondhand again of people's partners or and family or flatmates uh, listening to people listening to this album and being very confused like what they're playing the same song over and over and over again and if you're the type of person that already listens to the same Beatles song on repeat this really is going to be your jam and you're definitely going to get the most out of it but if you are someone who has very little patience for the same thing over and over and over again then this could be a bit of a challenge for you but hopefully the fact that so many of these mixes are so starkly different and there are great contrasts there and you do learn a lot about the creative process that should make up for it. 
Also, what I do enjoy about these bonus features is that they definitely learned, probably from you know feedback from the Let It Be set, that one of the best things about these session clips, these session bonus bits of audio, is just the Beatles themselves. We get so much of an insight into what the Revolver sessions were like, as in like what it was like to be there. You know, there's there's some real cinema verite, voyeuristic mise-en-scene work going on here. It really does feel like you are in the studio with the Beatles, experiencing it with them. And that's that's just the best, isn't it? Who wouldn't want that? And yeah, it's certainly a highlight here. So many of these tracks have bonus bits of uh, little chitter-chatter, something that I'm going to refer to a lot, uh, at the beginning and end of these songs and most of the time it's one of the best parts of each track so kudos for them for not just putting the audio on there you know the the instrumentation anyway i feel like i've spoken too much about what wasn't included in these sets so let's just sink our teeth into what was in this set and starting us off well and proper we have arguably one of the most revealing tracks on this album even if it doesn't quite count as a proper reveal this is tomorrow ever knows take one So yeah, right off the bat, this box set immediately gets its venial sitting out of the way by beginning the bonus content with a track that, yes, we've already technically heard before. What's worse is that we've already heard it on Anthology. Anthology 2 to be precise, track 17 to be more so. Yeah, look, I honestly don't get as upset by this as other people. Like, if you own a copy of Anthology on vinyl, I could see that how this would feel like a bit of a jip, but also, you are someone who owns a vinyl copy of Anthology, you're already quite a lucky person, so maybe, you know, give it a rest. But furthermore, A, as a kind of newer generation fan who doesn't own that kind of copy, and B, as someone who has always had access to it anyway via streaming services, I'm not all that fussed. The way I see it, regardless of whether it's been released or not, this is a crucial track in the development of both the final song and the final album, and to not include it would have been an even greater sin, a further sin of omission. And to further that point, what I would want as someone buying a Revolver box set, and one as expensive as this, would be to have all of the relevant Revolver content on it in one convenient package. So yeah, be upset if you feel cheated by hearing it somewhere earlier, but if you're like me, you know, your opinion is also no less valid. Anyway, onto the track itself. This one is really enlightening. 
both to first-time listeners and to old guard fans alike. Despite being the closer of the resultant album, it is one of the best choices they ever could have made in terms of introducing us to the concept of the Revolver bonus material. I mean, so much about this song is familiar, yet not. You know, we have the weird tape loop effect, but it's very basic and droning uh, in comparison, and clearly just a kind of baseline for what John's true vision was to be. There's the classic Ringo drum beat, but it's nowhere near as hypnotic as the version we would eventually get. And the song is also in the key of D minor, considered by classical composers to be the most melancholy of the keys, which makes sense when you consider the song. But then it actually became either C major or of C mixolydian, mixolydian. Uh, not sure how to, how, to, how to say that, but... Yeah, that change definitely gave the song a far different texture indeed. What we learn from this far more rudimentary early version of Tomorrow Never Knows is twofold, and this is largely applicable for the box set as a whole. First of all, we learn that these songs do have a passing resemblance to the final product, and secondly, we learn that despite some similarities, the majority of these songs were not the you know, automatic finished product of geniuses having clear visions in their head in the way that we're kind of led to believe via the myth. To get to the songs we know and love is a process of trial and error. And whilst the players themselves are indeed geniuses, like any artist with, you know, a media test or a test shoot or a lighting test, anything like that, they still need to put something to paper, or in this case, tape, to know what the final project is going to turn out to be, you know, they need to do something to know what they need to change. And it's so fascinating to see what they wanted to change and why. The process also isn't random either, but it's important for us to know that it's a combination of both planning and happy accidents that, when combined, become magic. And this track demonstrates that perfectly. What this track is, is an unprecedented insight into the songwriting process of one of the Beatles. You know, you really do get inside John's head. You get inside one of his most iconic songs. And to have the privilege of hearing the first take of Tomorrow Never Knows, of all fucking things, is out of this world. And again, what a way to open up this album. It's just badass. And for our second track of the day, we'll be continuing to stay in the Tomorrow with another peek behind the window, behind the curtain, of one of the Beatles' most highly regarded songs. This is Tomorrow Never Knows, Mix RM11. RM11.
as opposed to the first take of Tomorrow Never Knows, where we get to see what the song sounded like in its most basic form, with this take we are instead privy to what an alternate dimension version of this product could have sounded like. At this point in the narrative of the, of the songwriting, you know, the basic idea, structure, form and sound have all largely been decided and worked upon to great length, and the only thing left was to put it all together with the finishing accoutrements. But of course, they don't just take the first one that is seemingly done and call it a day, not with an experimental song as this. No, it's still a process, and with a song like this, which certainly ain't one of their early 12-bar blues rockers, they had to experiment and play around with what worked, and specifically what worked for John. With this version of the song, you basically get a what-if version of Tomorrow Never Knows. Is it a drastically different version than the one we get? You know, is it a drastically different timeline or dimension? Not really. But what it does do is prove, depending on your point of view, either that what we see as official mixes of the songs is a purely random happenstance and that any song could have sounded different and that they aren't a universal constant like gravity or the speed of light or it proves just how much work was needed to go into a song like this to make it the immutable official version that we all know and love. Unfortunately there aren't too many drastic differences for me to talk about here you know this is uh, a mono mix of the song that is I think, I think RM11 just means it was the 11th attempt at doing something like this, so they're clearly getting closer and closer to what they want, but we're still not quite there. And I feel like I'm not making it sound as interesting as I could, but it's not that interesting to me either, or at least the prospect of an alternative Tomorrow Never Knows should be way more interesting than this. And maybe it's just my own issue of expectation, but... Because Tomorrow Never Knows is so out there and so experimental and so weird that the idea of another version of it being out there could be so many things. Like it could be so drastically different and so completely off the wall. And the fact that it seems like it was only ever going to be something like this, you know, only with a, a bit of variation, is a little bit of a disappointment. Uh, on this set, I would have liked, again, a more out there different trippier version of tomorrow never knows but you know it's cool to see them go from that first take to this and then to play the final version you know we're, we're going to be seeing that a lot with this box set and it, it's still pretty cool but it's quite a bit of a step down from that first track anyway in third place we have one of my very personal favorite tracks on this bonus double album you know we are going to be picking things back up again and it is Got to get you into my life, first version, take five. So we, we start we start by fading up or bringing up. <laughs> fade this up, you mean? Fade the organ? No, not fade it up, just play it a bit before One, you two, three, it in, four. So it doesn't start off with ten. So it's already So playing. how do we get into it? Well, well George carries on counting, but you just start on three. Well, no, we fade it in, you mean, after? Well, not, not fade in, just bring it in from wherever it comes in, and you don't get the... You just, just switch it in, so you don't get any, any the organ starting up. That's what you mean. Well, you get that yeah, but if you do it before, we'll cut you uh, cut that bit off. No, I don't see how you're going to get anything different sound from that. 
Why though? Because they won't be turned on. No, you only what? counted one. Five dirty <laughs> bass for the two. You were always right waiting. One, two, three, four. I was alone, I took a ride, I didn't know what I would find there Another road where maybe I could see another kind of mind there Ooh, did I suddenly see you? Okay, so why is this one of my favourite selections from the new material in this box set? Well, let me tell you, it's simple really. It's almost all of the cool twists and new takes on a Beatles song that you could ever want on a single release. It contains in-studio banter between the Beatles and George Martin. It's a fantastic document that shows the evolution of the song. It has an entirely different musical arrangement and backing vocal arrangement. And on top of everything else, despite being completely rudimentary and primordial, it still sounds fucking awesome and stands up on its own two feet, or eight feet. So yeah, there's a whole lot for me to like here. Like the Let It Be box set, the studio dialogue that we hear is utterly enthralling. I mean, we have her, all, you know, heard latter-era chitter-chat in spades, but this mid-era stuff is a little more rare, and so I was delighted, and I was captivated to hear the lads discussing the song as they were making it. I know that some people out there may perceive it as bickering, but that couldn't be further from the truth. And instead, what we actually get to listen to here is what it's like when several people are working on a creative endeavour. Is it a total safe space where nothing is questioned and everyone just does what Paul says? Of course not. Of course not. And thank fuck it wasn't, as it is this creative, specifically creative freedom of expression that meant this inferior version of the song did not see the official light of day until much later. The organ sound though, okay let's just talk about the organ, of course it's the most immediate standout difference from the original track and my god does it ever give the song a completely different feel and tone. Like it takes a song that is timeless and makes it into a quintessentially 60s number in one fell swoop. I'm guessing that this was the original idea, or maybe uh, the way it was composed, but it's clearly not a bad idea to ha have it replaced with the final brass mix. You know, um, maybe the you know this was also meant to be like a fill-in for the brass work that would come later. But the fact that the Fab spent so long talking about it at the start proves that it was a proper part of the song at this early stage of development. But still, it's like a completely different tune, and it's such a mind-altering experience to listen to. Not only that, but additionally, we have something that we're going to see throughout this box set, which is backing vocals that never made the cut. The Beatles were still clearly somewhat reliant on their older style of harmonies, and this is when they broke on through to the other side with these sessions, maybe into more individual artists without them even realising. I could never have conceived of this song having backing vocals, and yet here we are. It certainly gives the song a totally different feel and adds a certain, pardon the pun, harmonious nature to it. But, and this is a big Kim Kardashian-sized but, 
I do feel like the solo McCartney vocal, or at least like the reduced backing vocals in the mix, if they are there, work far better in the whole getting you into my life aspect of the lyrics. You know, this isn't got to get you into our lives and making it more focused on Paul lends it that personable feeling that it's going for. Overall and all over, as much as a fun curio as this track is, it genuinely is something that I'm going to be listening to a lot. It is entering my personal Beatle head canon. This will be on playlists, this will be on compilations in perpetuity. And, you know, I, I, I just honestly enjoy listening to this one. It's a fun experience. And like so many songs we're about to listen to, it's a testament to how the choices we ultimately heard on the final album were the correct ones. Up next, and we have the second of this set's look into the progression of this incredible Beatles standard. This is Got To Get You Into My Life, second version, Unnumbered Mix. I was alone, I took a ride, I didn't know what I would find there. Another road where maybe I could see another kind of mind there. So we're starting to see a pattern on this album now. If there are multiple versions of the same song, you're going to get the most basic one first, followed by versions that get closer and closer to the original. Only with this track, that feeling is massively amplified as the last one we heard, aka first version take five, was so drastically different. I mean, the jump from that version to this is like chalk and cheese, and if anything it raises further questions as the progression is not entirely logical. It seems that in between this and that, they decided to rebuild the whole song from scratch. And by Jove, did it ever work? This take is basically a Beatles-only instrumental rendition of Got To Get You Into My Life, with little to no overdubbing going on in terms of the instrumentation, and what a fascinating experience it is for the listener. The final song, as we know, is dominated by the brass section, which is totally absent here, meaning that we actually have a chance to enjoy all of that background music that most probably don't even pick up on. For example, I never even knew that there were electric guitars making a presence on this track whatsoever. And on this mix, we get it in spades. The notes the guitar plays are the same as the brass, and whilst it does the job on this more rock-based mix, I now appreciate how... In the final mix, they actually accentuate those brass notes and complement them. I mean, you really can appreciate just how guitar-heavy this song is in this form. I mean, they're not utterly absent from that final mix, like I say, but since we get the whole band here just doing their thing, we can now prove that it actually is just a band song, and that, in theory, they could have just played it like this live. And, you know, it's not just something that Macca and George Martin cooked up separately. Still, we're not at the final version of the song just yet. 
Towards the end of the track, we get another attempt from the Beatles to Beatlify the vocals in this song. And whilst it's another fun variation, again, I can't say that I like it outside of it being a, a fun piece of trivia. I mean, I get what they're going for, and it's always nice to have them doing their harmony thing. You know, I need your love, I need your love. But, you know, the proof is in the pudding in terms of them dropping them for the final mix. Also, something I love about this track is the idea that it's unnumbered. It's not like this is the Please Please Me or With The Beatles era where everything was still a bit janky and by the seat of their pants, especially in terms of how things were labelled. But this is being recorded in 66 when the Beatles were already an establishment with dozens of professionals working for them around the clock, in studio and out. And yet, when it comes to their recordings, there's still a delightfully amateurish uh, labelling and recording system in place. And I kind of love it. I mean, yeah, it probably means that they were only purposefully denoting important takes, quote-unquote. But still, did no one think of cataloguing all of this stuff for posterity anyway? Probably not. Pressing ever onward, and we have our first triplet in this bonus material as we enter into the third rendition of The Only Into My Life. Unsurprisingly, this is Got To Get You Into My Life, second version, take eight. So this is the first of the quote-unquote karaoke tracks that we now have thanks to this box set. And yeah, surprise, surprise, that means that this is essentially a McCartney vocalless instrumental version of the song that we all know and love. It's really not hard at all to see what a wonderful addition this is to any Beatles fans collection, as not only does it allow us to sing along with the track in a way that was never before possible, but... It also means we can have a peek behind the curtain and appreciate the instrumentation. Also, in a way, never before possible. Essentially, this is the final backing track of the song heard on the final album, and if not, it's awfully fucking close. In the way that the unnumbered take meant that we could enjoy all of the work that the band themselves put into the song, Take 8 is all about respecting the core strength of the song's brass overdub arrangement. Yes, the element that was missing on the last take was dat brass, and it is on full display here for our listening pleasure. This is a take that reminds you, A, of the non-Beatle performers on this album and how much heavy lifting they can do on certain songs, and B, just how fab George Martin was in putting it all together. And this is certainly not the last time one of these takes will highlight George Martin. Hmm, I wonder why. Though... With the entire absence of Paul on the mix, it does inadvertently also highlight just how much of the appeal of this track is that final vocal. 
I'm not saying he saves it or turns a bad song into a good one. I'm just saying it's definitely the icing on the cake. Another star player on this one happens to be Ringo Starr. I mentioned how badass Ringo was during these sessions earlier, and I kind of always knew that this song heavily relied on Ringo's reliably strong playing, but what you certainly appreciate in even more detail is just how varied the styles are that he plays across this track. We get very subtle, precise cymbal work, along with some thunderous rolls across the toms, as well as that classic Ringo beat, and it shows just how bloody good he is at keeping that time. Again, nothing fancy, just peak Ringo. Yeah, basically, this track, as well as the last one, are fantastic introductions to the score of backing tracks that we're going to be getting in this box set. And you know what? It's probably for the best that we hear two of the best ones first. Anyway, following on, and we finally get a new song. This time, a George Harrison offering which makes sense, given how prevalent George is on Revolver. This is Love You Too, Take One. Granny Smith, Take One. One, two, three, four. Each day just goes so fast. I turn around, it's past You don't get time to hang a sign on me Love me while you can For I'm a dead old man Time is so short and you one can't be bored. But what Oh yes, now we're talking. This is what I want from bonus content, and that is solo acoustic demos. Yeah, I am an Isha man at heart. But not only that, we get an acoustic demo for a song that was never even considered a guitar song, let alone an acoustic strummer. Now, as Jonathan Preetus mentioned on my last appearance on the Ranking the Beatles podcast, this is 100% his favourite version of the song, and I totally get why. Just as with the acoustic demo for Not Guilty or Sour Milk Sea or the electric guitar demo of Something, there is an untenable, undeniable magic that comes from having George and a guitar in front of a microphone. Like, Lennon can be raw in a demo and show a completely different side to a song. McCartney can be whimsical and charming and show a different side of a song. But George is just spellbinding, I guess is the best way to put it, and show a different side of a song. There is a true serenity and tranquility that he manages to convey in these demos, and it's something that you really don't see in the final songs most of the time. And that, for me, is a shame. In fact, this peaceful atmosphere, as well as the overall quality of George demos, is often diminished by the time other elements are added and the other Beatles and producers get their hands on it. Tracks like this, and the ones I mentioned earlier, for me, are a testament to the fact that 
George, a lot of the time, was best served by a lack of production. You know, something we really don't get on All Things Must Pass, for example. And that, despite what the other Beatles thought at the time, George's songwriting was already incredibly strong by this point in his career. Something else I found to be fascinating about this take is the part when Jeff Emmerich is announcing the take for cataloguing. He doesn't call it Love You Too, and instead calls it Granny Smith. Now, I genuinely can't tell whether this is the notoriously anti-George Emmerich being really sarcastic and blithe towards a composition that he has no interest in recording, or if this is just a light-hearted bit of joking around that they were all in on, you know, and okay with in good faith. Either way, I can't help but assume that it did help George to settle on a name much quicker than he otherwise might have. Apparently, according to Robert Rodriguez's book, Revolver, How the Beatles Reimagined Rock and Roll, George was notorious for not committing to a name. So, Emmerich being slightly annoyed at that is a certainly a possibility. However, the most interesting part of this kind of mystery, that is wholly uninteresting to anyone other than diehard Beatles fans, is that this offhand titling predicts the logo and the name of the Beatles' future company. As we know, John and Paul were going to form the multimedia, multi-armed corporation Apple Corps uh, to act as the business wing of the band. And, you know, what would they use as the logo? A Granny Smith apple. Nice little coincidence there. Yeah, folks, this is a case whereby I don't have all that much to say. Not because I don't like the song, but because I fucking love it and was oddly able to succinctly put it all into words just why I like it so much. You know, rather appropriately, this is a divine little rendition of a song and there is nothing that I would change about it whatsoever. And for all of you shower singers, rounding out this side of the album, we have another karaoke track being Love You Too, Unnumbered Rehearsal. As you just heard, being that this is a rehearsal, this isn't the full backing. And this is clearly before any overdubs were recorded, as we don't even have a, a, a string section or anything like that. It's probably just them messing around and tuning up in the studio. You know, probably a bit like uh, the concert for Bangladesh, when they were literally tuning up their instruments and then people clapped and thought that was the song. But yeah, it's still insane how recognisable this track is from just these one or two players. You know, it, it, it makes sense. If George is going to go through the effort to get actual Indian performers on this track, then it makes sense that for this box set, they would take the time to highlight their fantabulous efforts. Oh, no. <laughs> Wait a second. 
it appears I may have pulled a fast one on you folks, because as the complimentary coffee table book that we'll get to later points out, the two players on this particular recording are none other than George fucking Harrison and Paul fucking McCartney. Yeah, I know, what the fuck, bloody mind-blowing. So yeah, not only do we have George actually being able to play the very complicated, complex melody of Love You Too on his own, meaning that he, he can, you know, could conceivably have done it himself, but chose not to. But apparently we also have Paul McCartney on this track as well. Like, not only is Paul doing the solo for Tax Man, but he's also showing George that he can play some Indian instrumentation as well. Like, I doubt that he's even, like, taken any of these instruments home to practice with. You know, it's probably, like, either a sitar or a tampur or something like that. You know, Paul's probably just picked it up, messed around with it, and been able to do it instantly because he's so annoyingly, you know, proficient in that way. But, yeah, did anyone listening right now have any indication that this ever happened before? Like, what the f... Honestly, it's one of the most revealing revelations of the entire box set. It's just so fucking cool. Anyway, as we know, the uh, previous version of this track that we heard was the simple acoustic run-through with George, and what I find most remarkable is how much progress has been achieved between the first take and this. Of course, it is more than likely that, despite being written on the guitar, that George always wanted this song to have an Indian arrangement, and, you know, he probably had to practice a bit of it himself on his own instrument, you know, to show the other people that were going to be performing on this song. So it makes sense that they're going to be doing a little unnumbered rehearsal like this. Uh, it doesn't make sense that Paul's on it, but, you know, I've got to move on from that point. But, yeah, you know, George's ability to go from something like Norwegian Wood, which is a typical Western song with a sitar part in it, to uh, a basic instrumental acoustic demo of Love You Too, to the truly brilliant splendour of the sitar and tempura work on this track is such an achievement. Like, George maybe had some help in transposing the guitar chords into the Indian arrangement. Maybe that's what Paul is doing here. Maybe Paul is helping him, you know, change it from guitar into Indian instrumentation. But still, George has taken to the form like a fish to water, and it sounds way more natural and professional than it ever has any right to be. I mean, think about how bad it could have sounded. The only thing that is a bit of a letdown with this clip is that there just straight up isn't more. I know it's a lame complaint, and I had nothing before I had this clip, but I guess it's just a symptom of the fact that, you know, this is just an unnumbered rehearsal that was probably found at the end of a reel. Again, not only is it not a take, but it isn't even an unnumbered take. And with Emmerich's lack of interest in George's track, it's no wonder that we only have a fragment of this song to listen to. But still, what a fragment it is. And the fact that it is incomplete, whilst being featured on a box set that does feel very complete, only adds to the mystique and intrigue of the whole thing. As you know by now, I'm also a sucker for no-lyric-based vocalisations, and the fact that we get to hear George kind of humming and half-speaking the words under his breath is a joy that I don't think I can quite fully describe to the fullest. I know it really isn't something that someone should take too much happiness in, but oh, I love it so much, so I'm not going to worry about it. 
it just tickles my fancy and I'm unashamed to say so. So yeah, this is another highlight of this collection, no two ways about it, and I feel immensely fortunate to have heard it, own it, and also have it available on streaming 24-7. And that is something I intend to take full advantage of moving into the future. And now we're going to move on to side two of this collection, and we're going to begin side two with a track that might just be one of the most satisfying in the entire collection. This is Love You Too, Take 7. Granny Smith, Take 7. This is a reduction of Take 6. Oh, yeah. One, two, three, four. I'll come right out with it. The reason that this track is easily one of my favourite on this entire album is because, like the version on the mono, it satisfied one of my greatest what-if desires in a piece of Beatles bonus audio. So, as you know, I'm a massive fan of Love You Too, and one of the only complaints I have about that song is that it ends too soon. I know you always leave them wanting more, but this is a rare exception where I took exception with the decision of the Beatles and George Martin. Quite simply, the track ends too early. There, I said it. And I can still cast my mind back to when I first heard this song in Mrs. Snyder's art class in year 12, like half of my lifetime ago. And I can remember really getting into the groove of the song and would have been happy for it to go on for another minute or so, you know, with that instrumental. And then I also distinctly recall the crushing disappointment that it didn't, and it just ended. What was worse is the fact that the tune faded out rather than coming to a close, which meant that there was more audio, but they were cruelly withholding it from me. There was a gaping hole in my life, and it was caused by Love You Too on Revolver. Though, please bear in mind, this was at a time before I was really considering the lengths of albums or formatting restrictions, so be kind. Anyway, being the supposedly mature individual that I am, I still never lost that feeling of incompletion. And so you can only imagine how thrilled I was that this track on this bonus version of Revolver actually went ahead and revealed the fact that there was audio and that I wasn't totally insane for finding it to be a point of extreme want and interest. I mean, after all of that, we only really got a sliver of bonus audio, but it was enough to fulfil that emotional need of mine, and I am more than happy about it. Though, something I find as enthralling as I do confusing about this track is the fact that they are able to feature said extended performance from the Indian players, and yet somehow the track itself is shorter than the one we ended up with. You know, it's only by like five seconds or so, and I'm sure there's a perfectly logical explanation, 
Uh, and it's actually even longer if you count, if you count the mono version. But, you know, I'm just so glad that we do have this extra bit of audio that I don't really even care how it works. Something else that leaps out at you as you listen to this song are the soon-to-be-dropped uh, harmony vocals from Paul that adorn this song. You know, it's it's him trying to kind of create a bigger, more angelic sound with George's voice. But, you know, the whole point of this song is that it kind of has that Indian Ram uh, mantra dirge to it with, with George's quite monotone performance. You know, and jo- you know, Paul being Paul simply can't let that be. You know, as per my proclivities, I love both how different it is and how much it reinforces how correct the final choices they made were. It highlights the experimentation of these sessions and how little of it was indeed set in stone before they got to the studio. So yeah, overall, another incredibly strong inclusion for this box set. And you know what? I'm going to say it out and out that in terms of a single song, Love You Too, in my opinion, easily has the most consistently interesting, varied and informative tracks on display. But with this track in particular, with Take 7, what it did is it did what I've always wanted, which is to simply give me more of a song that I love dearly. It's nothing complicated or heady. It just scratched an itch that had been itching me for a while, and now I am content. Carrying on with side two, and we finally get to move on to the singles of this era. One of my favourite things about this era of pop is the idea that The singles aren't included on the album, but they are recorded in the same sessions as the album. And it was a while into my Beatles fandom, indeed, that I even considered when these singles were specifically recorded. And, you know, Paperback Writer, along with Rain, are one of the prime examples of this practice. No prizes for guessing which of the two songs I could possibly be discussing this is. This is Paperback Writer takes one and two backing track.
Now, you might think it's a little strange to put two karaoke tracks like this back to back. Well, three if you think about it. But this is purely a matter of sequencing because the fact of the matter is, is that like Got To Get You Into My Life, this is a song that is iconic because of the vocals. Yes, the beat is sick and the guitar riff is badass, especially for a band as unriffy as the Beatles, but the one element that people always focus on are those harmonies. So, to have not one, but two versions of Paperback Writer without those epochal vocals is a marvel unto itself. The highlight of which, for me at least, are those moments where you know they are singing those five or six part uh, harmonies, you know, the titular line, and you can hear Ringo simply counting the beat to let them know when to come back in on time. Like, like the silence is deafening. It's so interesting. And what's even better are those little guitar strums that are definitely not on the final mix. You know, the reason that I like it is because it shows that, again, the Beatles are human and don't have pre-natural timing and actually do need to use conventional timekeeping techniques to ensure the song sounds proper. What reinforces that even further is the fact that we actually get a flub on this track. Yes, the title isn't wrong, this is both takes one and two, with two actually being the successful one. The first take only lasts around 35 seconds, and to be honest, I don't actually know what went wrong. I couldn't hear anything bad, they just kind of stopped playing. And I'm sure there is a reason that seasoned musicians will spot a mile off, but for this Philistine, I'm totally befuddled. And yeah, take two, almost perfect. Like, it's so mad how, you know, with so many of the songs during these sessions that were kind of like unformed and unfinished and they worked them out in the studio, it's quite clear that with Paperback Writer, which, to be fair, is built around a riff and is quite a simple rocker, just hits the ground running and you know hearing take two and you know being able to kind of add the vocals in yourself with your mind or even sing along if you are a much better singer than myself is a whole lot of fun overall you know d despite these two being a marvelous little curio that is all there will ever be like yeah it's nice to hear this behind the scenes stuff and what it's taught me about the band is certainly insightful, but it's not like I'm ever actually going to listen to this track outside of playing the album in full on vinyl. You know, I'm going to listen to this on streaming, which is fine, which is fine. Not everything can be the giggling version of And Your Bird Can Sing. But yeah, you know, this one is just okay, which is also fine. Anyway, on to the next song now, and the last intro was so long that I'm just going to cut to the chase. This is Rain, Take 5, Actual Speed.
Okay, I want you all to be honest now, class. Who here, as a so-called Beatles fan, did not know that the single version of Rain that we're all familiar with was not played at the same speed it was recorded at? Hey, look, don't be embarrassed. I was one of those people. Yeah, as it turns out, Rain is actually played back slower than it was actually recorded, which is mental. However, as Jeff Emrick explains here, the answer was an entirely practical one. He says, One of the things we discovered when playing around with loops on Tomorrow Never Knows was that the texture and depth of certain instruments sounded really good when slowed down. With Rain, the Beatles played the rhythm track really fast, so that when the tape was played back at normal speed, everything would be so much slower, thus changing the texture. If we recorded it at normal speed and then had to slow the tape down whenever we wanted to hear a playback, it would have been much more work. It all seems very simple now, and of course, tricks like this are easily accomplished on today's computers, but in 66, it was a pretty revolutionary technique, one that we would repeatedly use to great effect on Beatles recordings. Okay, so... How insane does that sound? I mean, it does, doesn't it? I'm sure you've all heard of a, a band playing a song or piece slower and then speeding it up, like, say, the uh, piano solo on In My Life. But have you ever heard of a band playing something quicker and then slowing it down? It goes against all sense and reason, right? But no, the Beatles went that extra mile to give their music a unique sound. It was for a particular effect, and you know, this is one of the primo examples of that. Why make another song that sounds like all the others you have made when you can do something different like this, right? And they went ahead and did it. And surprise, surprise, it's one of the most beloved numbers of their entire massive back catalogue. Now, in terms of whether I actually like this particular track or not, I feel like I probably should appreciate it more for what it's taught me about the band. But uh, as far as I'm concerned, this is mostly just a historical educational piece to explain how the album came to be. And I would argue that whilst I won't be listening to this one individually anytime soon, the sheer mind-blowing scale of what was demonstrated to me was so earth-shattering and poignant that it is easily far more of a worthwhile inclusion on this album than, say, the last one. Like, this is easily one of the most ear-slash-eye-opening tracks in the entire collection, even if it doesn't quite function as a song that I find pleasurable to listen to. Also, I can't be the only one who is curious to hear what Len's vocal would have been like if he had either sung it slower or faster, or if they'd played his vocal back slower. And I know they did do that based on this quote from Beatlebook.com, and so I know it exists somewhere. It reads, A decision was made to alter the speed of John's lead vocal as well, but in the opposite direction. John recorded his vocal track with the tape slowed down to 42 cycles per second instead of the normal 50 cycles per second. This made his voice sound faster when played back at the regular speed. So yeah, there's all sorts of fuckery going on with this song. And I'm really glad that I know all of that now. Again, like I said earlier, this is a very uh, learned, very encyclopedic look at Revolver. It's not just fun takes for the sake of it. And, you know, whilst I don't find this one to be all that enjoyable as a song... 
I can't deny that it's still really cool, really informative, and it demonstrates exactly what it set out to do. You know, it does achieve its own objective, and for that, I've got to respect it. Next up, and we have another take of Rain, this time at the speed you are familiar with. This is rather bluntly titled, Rain Take 5, Slow Down for Master Tape. Okay, so at this point in the collection, I would argue that this is the most superfluous of the lot. Of course, that may change as we go on, but so far, this is the one that kind of has me scratching my head in terms of why it was even included in the first place. Maybe this is just my tin ear for this sort of thing coming to the fore, but it literally just sounds like the Rain single that I've heard a million and one times before. I mean... For this review, I listened to this and the single back to back and I've not been able to find anything besides the sound quality being a, a little brighter and more well polished of the single version. Like, I feel like they only included this to be a quick point of comparison with the last track. Like, you know, oh it was recorded this way but it sounds this way. That's all well and good and it's nice to be able to see the end result of the journey, but in the age of streaming I could have just done that myself, and we could have had something different here instead. I mean, I know I'm notoriously bad at spotting these kind of differences, but for once I feel quite confident that this is literally just what we heard before. I mean, of course I know the people who put this together certainly think that there are enough differences uh, and learning uh, points to warrant popping it on the track list, but to this layman, I just don't get it. So yeah, in terms of meteorious inclusions on this set, I say that this is definitely one of the least worthy and probably should have just been replaced with something else, yeah. In fact, anything else at all would have been a better use of the limited disc space, in my opinion. Moving forward, and as someone whose opinion on Dr. Robert has certainly softened over time, I was quite pleased to see that we got at least one version of it here today. This is Dr. Robert Take seven. Ring my friend, I said you called Dr. Robert. Day or night, he'll be there any time at all. Dr. Robert, Dr. Robert, you're a new and better man. He helps you to understand. He does everything. If you're down here, pick you up, Dr. Robert. Take a drink from his special cup, Dr. Robert. Dr. 
First of all, this track automatically gets extra points from me as it features another counting, another, you know, two, three, four at the start. So it's already kind of superior to the one we get on the final album. And, you know, yes, I am a complete sucker for a counting at the start of any song. I'm not going to argue that. I mean, it's not as amazing as the one for Taxman, but few are, so I won't hold it against it. But yeah, for me, upon first glance, there really wasn't much of a difference between this and the original. But then I did a quick check on the runtimes and I realised that there's a pretty big difference that might actually be just a run-of-the-mill fuck-up. Basically, the original Dr. Robbie clocks in at around 2 minutes 14 and this version goes on for just under 3 minutes. And why is that? Well, the band actually ended up accidentally playing the middle 8th three times instead of two, which admittedly does make for quite the trippy experience and you know having listened to it on vital it was almost like it had just skipped skip, like skipped and gone back but unfortunately it's pretty much the only novelty that this track has going for it and one that wears off almost instantly after the first listen it doesn't retextualize the song or allow you to see it in a different way it is literally just the beatles messing up they are just so in the groove that they do it again that's it with John only realising the mistake after the fact. Uh, the following notation was actually made on the tape box. On remix, 3RD, 8 to be cut out. Yeah, you know, hearing the Beatles make another mistake, like on the paperback writer, take one and two, flub. You know, it's nice to hear that they aren't perfect. It's nice to see the Beatles eat a bit of humble pie. But is that really the only difference we could find for a different Dr. Robert take? Like, was there nothing else we could have had? I mean, we're not even halfway through yet, and I'm starting to feel like a broken record, but it's not like there's anything new here at all. So whether you like this or not comes down to what you consider to be bonus material in the first place. I mean, the Beatles as a band are tight as fuck, and so... There isn't a difference between this take and, say, a YouTube edit where someone just looped a certain portion of the track back around. Now, this isn't meant to be an insult to the fabs, and again, it's not their fault that they were so tight and they could not have predicted such homespun editing software. But it is what it is, and at the end of the day, it's just a longer version of Dr. Robert. If you ever felt the song was too short, or you wish you could groove with it just a little bit longer, then you probably will enjoy this one but if you're like me if not then it's just a window into the on-the-spot editing chops of Lennon however in terms of this particular podcast this particular review and this particular reviewer it does not do it for me past being a cool piece of trivia right cool we're now going to move on to another guitar-based rocker from these sessions this is and your bird can sing first version take two
So yeah, it's not that hard to realise that this is not the final arrangement of this song or the final riff used. Yes, and duh, what else can you tell us? Well, okay, this is easily the least notorious of the two versions on this disc, but maybe not the least in the entire collection. Yes, this one does suffer from straight up not being the next track on this disc, aka the giggling take of this song, but that really isn't this take's fault, is it? I mean, it's probably a sequencing issue more than anything, as it would probably be, be more effective to hear this song after the giggling take. You know, we listen to them fucking it up first, and then we hear this one, you know, how it's quote-unquote supposed to be done, even though it's not how it's supposed to be done. But still, this doesn't mean I dislike this track at all, and there's still an awful lot to talk about. First of all, and I know I don't need to point this out, but for completionist's sake, I will... The song does not start with the classic guitar riff. That riff is present in the song later on, but the one that kicks off the track is comparatively lifeless and old school. Like, this riff was so rightly dropped, as it's basically a light, lesser version of I Feel Fine or If I Needed Someone, and it sorely needed updating, because... You know, that's like a, a help Rubber Souls era sounding Beatle riff, not Revolver. And I think they could tell that in the studio. So, yeah, good job on them for repeating that riff earlier on. You know, it's a bit like starting a lot of their songs with the chorus. It's quite a George Martin move, actually. For the rest of the song, the guitars are also double tracked far more obviously here. It's more like they are dueling guitar riffs than the more mixed-down, complementary second guitar on the final song. And again, the results speak for themselves. It's jumbled, it's far too busy, and it physically prevents me from appreciating the soundscape as a whole. Actually, speaking of the guitars, something I only noticed just before recording is that they actually flub quite a few of the notes here, there and everywhere, which is actually quite funny in the sense that we have them messing up the vocals on the next one, so like it seems like they could never really quite get this version of the song right. Like many other of the early takes of the songs from these sessions, and just like the opening riff actually, the harmonies again seem to want to harken back to their earlier triplets purely because it's their established shtick rather than it being entirely appropriate for the song. Of course, even in this vestigial form, they still sound beautiful, but it straight up doesn't fit. Oh, but there is actually one element of this version that isn't on the final one that I do actually like, and that, of course, is that it has a counting. Look, I can't not mention it as it's always a positive, it just is. Anyways, I don't want to call this song bad. You know, I have been trashing it a lot and have barely said anything positive, and it certainly isn't complete or fully thought out, for that matter. But even after all of that, I still don't want to imply that this is a poor inclusion in this set, because it totally isn't. Like the first take of Tomorrow Never Knows, this is the Fabs pushing through a lesser piece of material so that they can exercise it out of their systems and move on to a better product. So, again, whilst it's not particularly great on its own, it's a wonderful audio documentary piece that says an awful lot about the sessions. And for the final tune on this side and of this disc... Rather appropriately, we have what might be one of the more well-known anthology tracks and most infamous alternate takes of any Beatles song ever. Ending on a high note, this is And Your Bird Can Sing, first version, take two, giggling. What? It is 
just there this is the version where the Beatles erupt into uncontrollable hilarities during this particular take and oh my golly gosh if it isn't just the most adorable thing you've ever heard I mean who of you listening out there to this isn't totally beguiled and charmed by the prospect of our four favorite lads just losing it in the studio for example they've made us laugh a million times but getting to see them break quote-unquote character is Again, a marvel unto itself. We've also heard them goofing around in the studio, but barely any of it from this period ever leaks out, and certainly not to this scale and length and notoriety. And so for that, this piece is automatically one of the most valuable Beatle bonus recordings ever, let alone this box set. What I like about the cataloging of this take as well is the use of the word giggling, like it's an official commonly used notation. They could have easily written like laughing as well, but no, the use of the word giggling perfectly sums up what is going on here. They aren't belly laughing at something inherently funny. This is a bunch of men acting like boys in that they're supposed to be taking something seriously and doing their job and just completely failing. Clearly someone smiled or hit a bum note or did something funny and that was it. The rest was uncontrollable chaos. Also, let's not take marijuana out of the possibilities as to why they're giggling either. What I also find so genuinely impressive about this take, with no wry irony or sarcasm whatsoever, is the fact that they don't stop playing when they start giggling and they actually carry on with the whole thing. Like, in my head, I would have thought that the band would have stopped the moment something went wrong, but clearly they were having so much fun in doing it badly that they wanted to carry on. Like, that is such a humanising thing to listen to. Like, not only do they make mistakes, but they aren't taking themselves so seriously that they're going to let it ruin their fun. It's a nice little window into their dynamic. Also, once again, we have to bring up the whole concept of songs being reused on this box set. And fortunately, this is a classic example of why certain songs deserve to be repeated in a compilation like this. This take is so utterly delightful and heartwarming that it does not matter one bit that it already appeared on Anthology 2 and nor is it this song's fault that it's already well known amongst Beatle fans. If it wasn't in this collection though now that would be the real affront to Beatle collectors. I mean A surely it's just good enough that you'd want it to be included anyway you know you'd have to swap discs or anything like that and personally as someone who doesn't own a vinyl pressing of Anthology as I'm sure many people my age and younger don't, this is a nice chance to add some classic Beatles history to my collection. In conclusion, rather surprisingly, I think that this is a worthwhile inclusion on this box set. 
you know, I don't think I was ever going to say anything bad about it at all. But hey, it wasn't like I was going to take an opportunity to not talk about something on this show, was I? And we're going to move on to side three now. And carrying on the tradition with the last disc, we're going to start off with a song that was actually on the previous disc. And that's going to be another version of And Your Bird Can Sing. This time it's the second version and it is Take Five. Quite, quite brisk, uh, moderato, foxtrot. You tell me that you've got everything you want And your bird can sing But you don't get me You don't get me You say you've seen seven starting to get a little bit closer to what I would expect with this song but you know we're still not at the point where they're starting off the song with the iconic riff which I think is the thing that's really gonna make it start to feel whole though you know we're getting pretty close you know the guitar riff is getting much closer to what we expect the harmonies are a little more familiar and just the the overall feel is far closer to what we know and love but the experimentation continues it's not quite there and I will admit that I wasn't that taken with this one when I first heard it, as I felt it was kind of perfunctory and listless. But after a few re-listens, I kind of got what they were going for. And the results are still really interesting. Like, we all know the Beatles are a pop rock band at the end of the day, but this take really leans towards the rock part of that dynamic, and it ends up with a much more grimier, harder-edged version of the song not massively so but certainly in terms of their sound for starters the pace is significantly slower leading the track to be around 20 seconds longer and the reason for that is because it now has this really heavy yet kind of jangly uh, rhythm guitar that that almost has that kind of beatles quote-unquote pre-metal ticket to ride sound which completely takes the brightness from the final version and replaces it with a much more serious tone. I think that's really cool. They they obviously didn't think so because they changed it, but you know, it as you know, silly and as corny as this sounds, it does recontextualize the song, not entirely, but enough for you to take note. Like the whole middle eighth is entirely more sincere and stern and it it does change the song quite significantly. Oh, and there are also like several little bonus flourishes on the guitar that George experiments with in this take that I love. You know, their, their, their peak revolver cutting room floor licks, you know, they're all over these bonus discs. The one thing that does make this song a little more lighthearted, perhaps to actually offset the actual tone of, you know, the guitar riff in this period, are the ah uh, harmonies that are sung over whenever the guitar riff is played. 
Again, again, as I've mentioned several times before, and will mention again, this is an example of the Beatles' old sound hanging on for dear life during these sessions, and it makes sense, both for the progression of this song and their overall sound, why they were dropped. You also get some tip-top John Lennon studio banter at the start of this, which one cannot not mention. It's only like three seconds or so, but still, it's classic Lennon. He's being typically witty and acerbic and just, you know, having a laugh before they actually have to start working. So yeah, in my original notes, I actually put this down as my easily least favourite version of this song. But now I do think it's at least as worthy as the other two for the inclusion in this box set. It's a good choice because unlike the other two major alternate versions of this song, such as uh, first version take two, I believe was the first one that we heard two tracks ago, this take shows that the Beatles played around with their songs, sometimes in more subtle and small ways, as well as drastic ones. On to our next song now, aka song two of disc two, technically side three, we finally have a take of the first actual song on Revolver. This is Taxman, take 11. Harley. One, two, three, four. One, two. Let me tell you how it will be. There's one for you, 19 for me. I'm a basic-ass bitch slash dirty casual fan who only wants wildly different takes, especially in terms of drastically obvious differences, of course I was exorbitantly satisfied with this rendition of the iconic album opener. As you've likely guessed already, I was also more than pleased with the fact that this wholly fascinating take is also the take that spawned the paradigmatic 1, 2, 3, 4, 1, 2, 3, 4, counting. This means we are off to an incredible start, and thankfully there was more than enough for me to seek my teeth into in terms of seeing how this song changed in the studio. I mean, I should hope so, this is the only one in the whole collection, so it better be bloody worth it. And it was, featuring a couple of notable alterations from the final version. For the majority of listeners, the stand-up moment during this rendition will surely be the very silly backing vocals that appeared during the Ah Ah Mr Wilson and Ah Ah Mr Heath parts of this song. Uh, they are very goofy indie doing any money, any money, any money, that's money, something like that. And oh wow, is it ever immediately apparent to the listener that George again obviously made the right choice in choosing to uh, have something a little uh, wittier for that segment instead. Like it's not 
literally playing duet. Like they're not literally singing Ah, ah Mr. Wilson. It's just any money, any money, anybody goes the money. It, it's it's so goofy and it really takes away from you know the kind of harsh George Harrison esque edge this song has. Also, just as a little aside, the coffee table book of this set mentions that. When George did this song during his Japanese tour in 1991, uh, an, an album that I do not remember fondly at all, apparently, though, he changed the names, uh, Mr. Wilson and Mr. Heath, to the contemporary political leaders of the time, those being Prime Minister John Major and the leader of the opposition, Neil Kinnock. That's really cool. In terms of other differences, there, uh, a comparatively far less noticeable one would be the extra raucous flourishes on the electric guitar that I honestly found to be completely charming again i mentioned that you know, these kind of licks are all over this album and this one's no different and i'm kind of not sure why they remove them in the first place i think it's literally totals to like four notes maybe like it's literally just two extra phrases of well with the second of them you know, being a lot more sustained. And so it's probably the most intrusive thing ever i don't think it makes it too busy or that they betray the sound of the song or anything like that and I actually think it complements what they were going for. But clearly, George, Harrison and or Martin thought that it was a little bit too much and sadly took it out. But, you know, stuff like that would maybe like work really well on the mono. That could have been fun. Guess not. Though, as you find out in the Coffee Table book, again, this is the take where George actually added the extra guitar riff for him. Don't ask me what I want it for. And... Part of me wishes that we could have heard a stripped-down version of this song. Like, maybe just with those extra guitar riffs and not the new riff. You know, they don't... Like, especially if it had different guitar parts and different harmonies. You know, that might have been a fun take to include as well. Like, I don't know why we can only hear from... What was it take 11 onwards? Like, you know, take 1 and 2 of Taxman. I wonder what that sounded like. But, you know, that'll be on a future box set, which is fine. Something else that's pretty cool about this take, and uh, I remember like listening to this for the first time, and I was thinking, bloody hell, Paul's solo is really good, man. He's you know he's got it spot on in this take as well. But as I read in the coffee table book again, this is the actual take that they use for Paul's solo, which is really cool. But again, it would have been nice to maybe hear a different take where we don't hear the solo we've already heard. Mm, you know what I'm saying? Anyway, this is a very cool version of Taxman. The only thing I have to say that is negative is more towards the whole box set as a whole. Like, maybe if we didn't have that pointless version of Rain, we could have had another Taxman on this one, because it is a shame that we only have one. But, you know, like I mentioned earlier, you do want to leave them wanting more, don't you? Alright, now we come to the first of four incarnations of I'm Only Sleeping. Yes, four Though, this time, they at least let you know that it isn't going to be a full four-song commitment, as this is an I'm Only Sleeping rehearsal fragment.
Okay, folks, after a somewhat sporadically positive series of reviews for the individual songs in this set, let me let me come out and outright declare my love for I'm Only Sleeping Rehearsal Fragment. I had no idea this thing even existed. It's one of the best surprises on the collection. It really did floor me. And, I, you know, when I was first listening to it, I was absolutely gobsmacked. I'm so glad I know about it now. It really rounds out one's knowledge of this song and it's easily one of the best revolver adjacent items there is hands down no questions asked one of the best in this collection also this this alternate take meets all of my requirements you know it's new it's informative it's bloody brilliant and i can't wait to overplay it into the ground so yeah as you may have guessed this is an actual take per se and is instead like love you too another rehearsal fragment and this makes me wonder like, did they tape every rehearsal was the button just left on and this is just another great happy accident from their story? What's the deal here? I'd love to know. Anyway, as you heard just then, whilst there is a melodic similarity to the final song, and there are a lot of the you know, chords and notes are there, it's still a million miles away from what we would end up with on the final album. And, you know, if anything, rather than it being something official... This is more of an explanative mood and tone setting piece, you know, being taught by John, so that all the other players know what they're going to be aiming for when they do the real takes. But still, what a revelatory piece this is. I mean, I didn't know any of the Beatles could play, you know, uh, wooden instruments like this. Uh, it sounds like it's either like a vibraphone or a xylophone. And as far as I remember, I did go back and check, there is none of that on the final recording. So to have it feature so prominently here is just so enticing. I want to know who's playing it. I want to know if John had to like teach them the chords. You know, it'd be even better if, if it was John, of course. But, you know, were there other takes that went in a similar direction to this? Or did they go right into the uh, electric guitar and backwards guitar stuff? I mean, if, if there was a missing link between these two tracks, I'll be so excited to hear it. Oh, actually, before we uh, conclude, the first thing that I did think of when I heard this song w were those like intertitle or montage type tunes that would be on the BBC, um, you know, in the 60s and 70s for shows like uh, Blue Peter or The Sky at Night. And the most obvious tune like that is called Left Bank 2 by the Novel Tones, which was actually used for the gallery segment of a children's sh uh, art show called Vision On. Now, Vision On was first broadcast in 1964, and this song came out in 66. So it is entirely possible that Lennon would have been familiar with Left Bank 2, especially with having a young son being you know, a prime age for such a programme. Maybe a bit of a stretch. I know it's been a quite the digression, but I cannot not bring it up as I know it's relevant on some level. And yes, I will be playing Left Bank 2 as the hidden song at the end of this episode. Yes, folks, once again, this is another runaway success. You know, my knowledge of alternate Beatle takes is nowhere near as extensive as my knowledge of, say, alternate takes for Solo McCartney. But still, I had no idea that they ever did such a wildly different approach to this song, which made it just the most exciting thing ever. I'm so glad they included it, because if not, they would have been depriving us of one of the best things in the entire collection.
Right, we now move on to another version of I'm Only Sleeping. Two out of four now. Come on, folks, we can get through this. This is I'm Only Sleeping, take two. Take two. Now, when we were talking about the last song, I did say I wanted some sort of missing link, Australopithecus type song to exist between the rehearsal fragment and the final song. And I guess this is kind of it, but it's not really what I meant. You know, I definitely meant something with a bit more vibraphone to it. Uh, this isn't that. This is, yes, another crude run through of the song, but this time it's done acoustically. Only this time it's also with the whole band rather than just the songwriter doing like a solo take or anything like that. And I will say these stripped down band versions of the songs are some of the most enjoyable things on the album. And you know what? This might not be what I was thinking of, but I will eat up this kind of shit as long as they keep dishing it out. Now, for a song as complex and unorthodox as I'm Only Sleeping, I was pleasantly surprised to get what is essentially a simple, unplugged version of the song. I'm not saying I was never able to appreciate the tune. You know, it's one of my favourite songs from Revolver. I'm just saying that without all the bells and whistles and backwards guitar, it's still surprisingly an amazing piece of work and one that was, again, such a joy to hear. Already, though, it's interesting that by... Supposedly take two, we, we have lost the vibraphone that I loved so much, which, um, you know, it's, it's, it's sad because it would have been cool if it was a proper take and not just clearly something that was about getting the tone and chords right. Interestingly, with this take, Paul also clearly hasn't worked out the bass part fully and kind of just playing like root notes here. I mean, after the vocal breaks, it's actually George that does the like little electric fills, like not Paul doing the boom, 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 boom. And this is obviously one of those moments where Paul is just helping John work out the song before he sits down and creates a perfect, complimentary, awesome, complex bass line. And, you know, it shows that he really doesn't just come up with them on the fly. Like almost every song in these damn sessions, the backing vocals are way more prominent with Paul and George backing John on way more than just the call and response parts. Again, with it being much more of a triplet, early Beatles kind of feel. We also don't yet have the heavenly oohs, and it's still far too busy. You know, this whole box set is really reinforcing just how much of a transitional album Revolver was. Like, you know, every Beatles album was a huge leap, especially from, say, Help to Rubber Soul, but all the leaps we are hearing here is making look the ones before look like a, like a moderate step forward by comparison. Something I also thought was nice, you know, a, a fun change of pace, was the fact that 
This one also features all of the studio chatter at the end rather than the beginning. The way John just hoots and hollers into stopping the performance is just hilarious. And what I realised with this take is that I don't actually even need like coherent conversation with the studio chatter. I don't even need to pick up on what they're saying or the individual words. What I actually enjoy about the chatter is just how incidental it feels. You know, it just feels like you're there with them in that moment, regardless of, you know, whether it's a hilarious quip or an insightful comment or something that I can even interpret or not. So, yeah, no surprises. I love me some early demos. I love me some band-only run-throughs. So this ticks two of my big boxes. And, you know, it, it just earns a place on this collection by being an earnest, uncomplicated version of the song. Again, even in its very early stages, it's still wholly, entirely entertaining. Right, we now move to yet another enlightening recycle of I'm Only Sleeping. For all of you Dave Brubeck fans out there, we have I'm Only Sleeping, take five. to another backing track run through this time and even if it isn't denoted that way in the title that's what it essentially is but this isn't a rehearsal to make the song the perfect version we all know now this is still them clearly testing out the kinks and going something a little bit different which in theory should be quite exciting this is a far more upbeat and quick paced version of the song and right away you know that this was never going to end up as the final version as it's just too Oh no, for lack of a better phrase, awake. You know, the entire languid, dreamlike feeling that makes up the song and keeps it on theme and makes the whole thing work has been almost entirely lost here. And it feels like a completely different song in a bad way. As always, it's great to see the band try out things and experiment, but the point of experimentation is the process, not the end result, and that shows here. Like, I'm glad that they're doing the scientific method correctly and jettisoning this stuff when they need to. But, again, like other songs on this box set, this is a case whereby it could actually be considered to be a bad take, but it's still a fascinating inclusion nonetheless. Now, the reason this wasn't listed as a backing track is because there is evidence of John singing during the performance, as it is clearly picked up on one of the mics at least. The thing is, though, is that it's clearly not John's mic, which is very strange indeed. Like, was it meant to be, and this is a big fuck-up? Maybe John wasn't happy with the vocal yet? Uh, is this actually meant to be more of a rehearsal than an actual take? Who knows? But 
Either way, it is kind of completely spellbinding to pick up on the odd utterance from John here or there. You know, it feels so very voyeuristic and maybe it was never meant to be heard. And even though the take itself isn't all that good, this particular element makes the whole thing far more engaging for me. Also, it's quite cool to see that by take five, McCartney has already pretty much worked out the entire sophisticated bass part for this song. And as I alluded to in the previous review, just adding those at the end of the verses just metamorphose this song into the classic it is clamouring to be. Like It's such an important part of this song. It cannot be understated. So yeah, overall, this is another one of those ones where it's mostly just a fun audio document. Again, very informative. It's nice to know that they didn't go down this route. It's always fun to take a peek at alternate history. Though, by, by, by this point in the episode, folks, I do feel like the whole I wouldn't listen to this independently comment is almost kind of moot for this album as... It is, as I mentioned, an entirely different beast to the other anniversary albums where they do aim for like songs that you would play independently, like you know, completely different songs or like really goofy or really different takes and stuff. Uh, you know, the content here is just so different that maybe I need to think of another thing to say at the end when I'm not all that taken by a track. But yeah, this one's fun enough, but maybe for all the wrong reasons. Okay, on to the next song now. But, as you know, it's actually not the next song. This is the fourth blooming version of I'm Only Sleeping we've had on this episode. You know, John is still sleeping, only this time it's I'm Only Sleeping Mono Mix RM1. So folks, after three illuminating and informative renditions of I'm Only Sleeping that have awoken me, pun intended, to the true genius behind the song, it was only inevitable that the fourth and final version of the tune would be anything but those two previous adjectives. I mean, it's hard to give us four unique versions of any song in construction, and considering how great the last three were, I'm not all that upset, but as far as I'm concerned, I'm Only Sleeping Monomix RM1 is just another song like the fifth take of Rain where I just don't get why it was put on here at all. Again, could be straight up a case of tin ear, but I don't hear anything worth commenting on other than the fact that this is just a different take from the one we finally got. And yeah, I know that not every alternative take is going to include some revelatory middle eighth or a deleted verse or different instrumentation, but for the layman such as myself, who really can't pick up on the subtleties that I'm sure this take has, it just sounds ever so 
you know, minutely different. There's so little to comment on. There's nothing different about this take, really. It almost seems to exist just to give the fans the fruit of the band's efforts after the last three takes, just to complete the journey that we went on. But again, like that other version of Rain, where it just sounded like the same as we got on the final release, it's just a little underwhelming when I could just go and put on one of the other discs that they've given me and listen to I'm Only Sleeping properly. Especially with the, the, the awesome mono take as well. Honestly, folks, if I'm missing something here, please drop me an email at paulmcconneypod at gmail.com and put me right, because I don't see anything worth commenting on here. This was a poor inclusion and a waste of disc space. Moving ever onwards, though, onto some content that I can definitely gush over a little bit more than the last song, it is now time for us to come to McCartney's own Tomorrow Never Knows. And with Paul being Paul and John essentially stealing the tape loop Stockhausen thing that he was apparently into first, he's going to go completely 180 and instead have a double orchestral quartet. Though we aren't quite at the part with any actual music just yet. This is Eleanor Rigby, Speech Before Take Two. <laughs> now, in fact, on your, do you use a rod on those? Um, yes, ones? we do. Yes, yeah. tiny yeah. bit just to just to produce it. The, to, yeah. You'd like it dry? Well, yes, you do. Where well, are you, Paul? Are you there? Do you want him to use? Yes? Do you want him to use the chords without a at all? Do you want to hear it? I can't hear you. What? Just I think it means the chords. I think it means the chords after I mean, G. I mean, what, what no, you mean this? Actually, I mean better B, for example. Uh, listen to this, Paul. This is without vibrato on the on the um, on the rhythm bit. You know, same three, four, G, B. Right. Now, the same as you were with with vibrato. Three, four. It sounded better without. Yeah, I thought it did, actually. Yes. It sounded better sounds without. better without. Yes. Especially if we make it more Cleaner, marcato. Yes. It's a slightly mm. more big mechanized version. Let's do it without. So you only hit a vibrato when you've got anything to say. Mm -hmm. oh, okay. And even then, unless it, unless it happens to be a long one, like, for example, you've obviously got to have a vibrato on those chillers. Mm -hmm. But even on the, um, you know, your statements, Tony, for example, or the... Inner parts, keep the vibrato fairly narrow, not too wide of a vibrato. That's it. That's it. Deadly, isn't it? Deadly. Deadly. Ooh, baby. Now, this is what I'm talking about. This is the sweet, sweet nectar that I'm after whenever one of these box sets come out, rather than, you know, a bit of chitter-chatter before then going into a song. With this track, we'd straight up get two minutes and 11 seconds of uninterrupted cinema verite inside Abbey Road Studios. So, yeah, it is automatically a worthwhile addition to this box set. 
as I mentioned earlier, I don't even need it to be poignant or relevant or even legible. But hey, if it is actually all three of those things, especially in the context of it being before take two of Elna Rigby, then I was never going to be able to resist and rather sensibly take two is the following track. So it's, it's the perfect prelude. It's a wonderful twofer. Now, the first thing I loved about this song was how clearly in control of the situation George Martin was and how still kind of wet behind the ears a young McCartney still is, you know, especially with like orchestral stuff. You know, the main part of the discussion is George Martin wanting to demonstrate to Paul what a vibrato in the song will sound like. And it's one of the most intriguing parts of the whole collection. Like, I'm sure McCartney knew of the concept of vibrato, but he had never had such a hands-on control over an orchestral set of players before. And it's clear that he might not know how to get what he wants out of them and that he's having to rely on a man like Martin to be in the middle. And, you know, just getting to get a sneak peek on that, again, is, again, very voyeuristic. You know, should we be hearing this? But, I mean, oh, my God, its value as an audio document is nearly unparalleled on this set. I also just enjoy the mise-en-scene of the whole thing. There are loads of other voices popping in and out of the background, even talking over each other. There are people coughing, feet shuffling about, people tuning their instruments in an almost Sergeant Pepper-esque way. And we even get some of the Elner Rigby strings teased for us in glorious form. Honestly, there is so much to process that it's a little overwhelming and it makes me wish that there was some accompanying film to go along with it because, you know, this audio is could easily be as compelling, if not more so, than anything in Jackson's docuseries. Again, if there were some footage, which I just know there isn't, sadly. Though, arguably, the best part of this slice-of-life clip for me is the lack of communication we get. You know, not from Paul not being able to understand. He clearly gets it once Martin shows it. You know, him, yada, yada, yada. But it's the actual prevention and blockage of actual communication as clearly Paul is still in the control room at first, you know, once George is trying to speak with him. So, to my delight, and surely to the uh, chagrin of others, half of this clip is almost like a goon's comedy skit where two geniuses are literally having to repeat themselves to no end because, like, a mic isn't working or they can't hear each other or everyone else is just too loud. It's kind of funny as it is informative. Yep. Safe to say, I absolutely love this one. I absolutely adore this, you know, kind of shtick. I wish they included more of it on each release. You know, we got quite a lot on the Let It Be one. We actually get less on this. So, you know, a whole track like this in this box set is all the more valuable. And now on to the final song of Disc 2 Side 1, a.k.a. Side 3. We have the most logical sequencing in the entire collection, having just heard... Eleanor Rigby's speech before take two. It's now time for, you guessed it, Eleanor Rigby, take two. Take two. Stop me if the tempo is not fast enough, Paul. One, two, three, four. <laughs>
Right, this one totally explains itself, doesn't it? Surely? I mean, what more do we need to say other than this is the instrumental backing track to Eleanor Rigby? Like, this song is regularly discussed within the context of being the first Beatles song not to have any Beatles playing on it whatsoever, and so it totally makes sense that this box set would seek to highlight that fact in glorious high quality. There's nothing more I could add to it than that, really. We all know that it's one of the greatest recordings of all time. We all know that it's arguably the crowning achievement of George Martin as the Beatles' producer. We all know that this is straight up one of the best Beatles songs ever. All this is, is an opportunity to sit back and take all of that information in, appreciate it, and absorb it. You know, I'm not even going to call this a karaoke track, because... You shouldn't be singing over this and putting your voice in place of the Beatles. This is one of the greatest orchestral pieces of music ever, and you've just got to sit down, shut up, and respect it. There is no question at all that this is not only a worthy inclusion, but again, one of the best in the entire set. You know what? Actually, let's just give a quick shout out to the players that made this performance possible, because they aren't secretly Paul and George this time around. All of them totally deserve more of a, a highlight within the Beatles world. And, you know, if you do it on this podcast, so be it. They have been immortalised in Beatles history, but do you know their names? On the violin, we have Tony Gilbert, Sidney Sachs, John Sharp and Jürgen Hess. On the viola, we have Stefan or Stephen Shingles and John Underwood. And on the cello, we have Derek Simpson and Norman Jones. Shout out to those legends. Also, just before we move on, I just want to point out that the transition between this track and the last one was so seamless that it genuinely seemed like the chitter-chatter went straight into this take. It, it sounds fantastic and it works beautifully in terms of the sequencing of the album. And there's a real momentum and drive to, to the whole thing. But I also have to put on my thinking cap and be that guy and point out that in reality, that probably couldn't be further from the truth. You know, I don't think people are standing around talking and then immediately, you know, dive into an actual song recording. Yeah, give me a break. Definitely didn't happen. But still, regardless of that, this is one of the best things in the whole collection. I absolutely love how simple and beautiful it is. You know, you don't need much to explain what's going on here. It speaks for itself. And now we're going to move on to side four, beginning with... A song that has always been a low-key favourite of mine on Revolver. This is For No One, Take 10, Backing Track. Take 9. 10. You know, it picks up a little bit. So try and think of... Well, shall I just keep it straight then? Yeah. Don't do anything else. Oh, yeah, yeah, do. Just keep it straight. We're trying all It's safe to say that I was rather excited for this one, to say the least. For No One is another one of these songs where 
particularly because of the emotional connection I have with it and with the story, I've always ended up focusing uh, way more on the vocals than the instrumentation. So with this being just the backing track, along with the clavichord overdub that was added later, we just get to sit back and listen to two Beatles doing their thing. Yes, uh, this isn't the full band, this is just a session with Paul and Ringo, which is a, a not oft seen pairing, which is quite fun. What's even better is that we get a smidge of dialogue between the two of them right at the start, and getting to hear some Paul and Ringo banter is not only a real rare treat, but it does show that Paul didn't just do it all for Ringo or showed him what to do. It was, in fact, a healthy working relationship, and that was great to hear. What this track is, first and foremost, is a wonderful opportunity to appreciate the keemanship of McCartney. I mean, we all know he's an excellent piano player, keyboard player, harmonium, harpsichord, Wurlitzer, and in this case, clavichord or whatever player. If it has keys, he will smash them and smash it. So to have that isolated and emphasised in this track, especially as a McCartney podcaster, is a very pure joy. I, I, I do find it hard to put it into any more words than that. Something I never really appreciated with this song until I heard this take was just how much the melody of the, the song informs and mirrors that vocal melody. Like, of course it does, it's a Beatles song, but because of the vocal in the final song, you really don't notice how similar they are. I also should point out that Paul is not so good that he's able to play two key instruments at once with seemingly four hands or both hands and feet. And it's because, as I hinted at earlier, this is a combination of two tracks put together. It's not a pure uh, backing track take on its own. Paul did overdub the clavichord later on. What this track also does do is give us another splendid opportunity to revel in the reserved, restrained drum work of Ringo, who doesn't want that. And it's another archetypal performance from Mr. Starkey, as it's not flash, it's not complex, it's not technical, and yet he knows exactly what to do cleanly and effectively. Pure Ringo. You know, this track is just a great chance to just focus on these two for once. Like I said, you never really get this pairing. And so just having a song with those two playing at all is just such a unique combo that you, you really can't not respect it. And of course, with this being my number one song from Revolver, maybe number two, but probably number one song from Revolver, I leapt at the chance for a bit of no one karaoke, uh, learning that this was just a backing track. But rather like Eleanor Rigby, it's just so beautiful that I really don't want to sing over it and make it sound worse because you know, it, it is just so mellifluous. It really is. And it will just remind me of how much of an awful singer I am anyway. So yeah, another great inclusion on this set, though. Like Dr. Robert, I kind of wish that there was just another version of it, especially because we're going to come now to a four-part exploration of a song that we never even knew needed such a detailed explanation. Though, I am not kidding when I say that not only might this be the most uh, illuminating of this upcoming foursome, but of the entire box set as a whole. Brace yourselves, folks. This is Yellow Submarine Songwriting Work Tape Part 1. In the place where I was born No one cared, no one
So, for anyone who remembers, this was one of the two songs that was uploaded to streaming services early to drum up hype and interest in this release, and that is what it certainly did. Though, I am a little concerned that they kind of blew their load somewhat, as this track easily is one of the most revelatory things in the entire collection. And, as you just heard there, it really isn't that hard to understand why this is so game-changing. Well, I guess it depends on your level of research prior, actually, but I'm pretty sure that my approach and reaction to this track will largely mirror yours and the majority. So, you know, give me a little rope. Uh, basically, we all know Ringo never wrote Yellow Submarine, and I imagine that, like me, many of you assumed, with the song's childlike, whimsical nature, that it would have been mostly penned by McCartney, you know, a McCartney joint, with some input from John. Well, as we just heard then, that could not be farther from the truth. And it turns out that the genesis of this song came from John. So, I did go back to Beetlebooks.com, which actually isn't affiliated with the Beetlebooks podcast, by the way. And it's a fantastic resource for anyone, like me, who would rather have a detailed wiki on each Beatles song rather than, you know, doing actual research in actual books. And the Lennon demo was indeed mentioned on there. So it's not like it's been hidden information or anything. But I'd like to assume that it was certainly not well known. Especially since it did blow up as a piece of Beatle trivia on Beatle Media when it was released. You know, a lot of people were shocked by this in the lead up to this album. And it's still quite shocking. And I'd argue even at this early point that this song will have been the one where people have changed their opinions on it the most. There are more people with probably different or more well-rounded opinions on Yellow Submarine than there are with any other song from this collection. It certainly changed my view. Just as a little aside, though, uh, I hate to be a mopey pessimist here, but let's be real here, folks. We all know that deep down that this widespread, far more public declaration of this being a Lennon tune will inevitably result in Yellow Submarine having far more like street cred and credence than it already had. Whereas before people, on the whole, looked at this song as a silly, optimistic, surreal, McCartney nonsense tune, now there will be people who, despite this song not changing in the last 60-odd years, you know, they will now consider it to be maybe deeper than it was, more important than it was, and maybe even just fundamentally better than it was. I don't mean to bash Lennon or his fan base here, but that's just how the Beatles community has worked, as I have experienced it. I guess only time will tell. Anyway, it's clear from this song that Lennon's original version was not realised, and rather like the original home demo for Help, the overall result was a heavily Beatle-ified one. What we get here is a very small, very personable story that is so tender and vulnerable this is 100% a John writing exercise, and sounds very much like uh, My Mommy's Dead or something like that. And the overall question I'm left with at the end of listening to this song is, were there even more Beatles songs that have drastically different uh, be un ified demos that we don't know about, you know? So yeah, folks, whilst this might not be the most finger-clicking, listenable tune on this box set, it's arguably one of, if not the most important, and educational one. But you know what? It's still pretty fun for something that makes you learn. Now we're going to follow on from that mind-bogglingly eye-opening work tape and we're going to move on to a slightly less mind-boggling eye-opening demo work tape. This is Yellow Submarine Songwriting Work Tape. <laughs> <laughs> 
part two. Oh, do you want to start it again then? No, well, you do it then, I'll just play No, no, no. You'll never hear it with two of us. Anyway, just sing No, but you, you know how to sing it. You okay, well, do I can't, it. can't see it. <laughs> oh, yeah, OK. It's just a critical mic. Can you read that? Yeah, I can read it OK now, Paul. Right. right. You can play on your track and I'll play on mine. Okay, so with this take we can see the evolution of the song taking form. Clearly we are at the point where Lennon has taken the song to McCartney to work it out, and the difference is stark, to say the least. Like, it's not like adding McCartney to the mix was ever going to make the song darker and more personal to Lennon's experience, so no one should be too shocked. What we get, rather predictably, is a song that is brighter and more universal and less obtuse in its meaning. Gone are any depressing references to no one caring about the singer in his hometown, and instead it's been replaced with this charming little tale about men sailing to sea and yellow submarines. All familiar stuff, and... What it is, essentially, is one fell swoop from McCartney to Beatlefy that very tender, sad Lennon song, and turn it into a palatable pop tune to be sold to the masses. This feels like a business move happening right in your ears. Now, considering that this went on to become a massive single for the band and made them loads of money, and is easily one of the most beloved and recognised songs by both fans and the wider world... I can't help but feel that McCartney completely rewriting the intention and the tone of the song was actually indeed the right thing to do. I mean, it, it just was. Yep, it's a shame that Lennon's sad little tale has been lost to the sands of time, but the gains are immeasurably positive. This is way more fun, you can sing along to it, and it makes you actually want to carry on listening to it rather than making you get all needlessly uh, windswept and contemplative. The best part of this demo, though, has to be the addition of that little lookout that John and Paul sing after each line of the chorus. It's an utterly adorable touch, and I could hardly contain my jubilation the first time I heard it. I mean, it's so good that I kind of wish that I'd left it in the song, rather than like those extra flourishes that George put into Taxman. Or, you know, again, maybe make it exclusive in the album, or the mono, or the single version. But alas, maybe there are things that are even too cute for the cute beetle. I mean, it probably only exists as something that they throw in there to keep up the paces because they are also playing the song significantly quicker as well. Oh, and on the subject of pace, is it just me or does the song work far more effectively as an acoustic number at this speed? I think, I think it does. This probably will end up being my preferred version to not only play Yellow Submarine for myself, 
but also to listen to it. This could be the ultimate take of Yellow Submarine. I mean, you know, just work all the extra lyrics around and stuff. And maybe there could be a really cool mashup somewhere. I don't know. Also, can we just take a second to appreciate the fact that we are getting access to this kind of material in the first place? I mean, this shit is absolutely insane. You know, I kind of expect the occasional home demo from one of the Beatles doing it solo, just hit them in a little tape recorder, and I certainly expect studio run-throughs and rehearsals, but to get a peek into a specific Lennon-McCartney collaborative writing session happening live is on another level of absolutely engrossing voyeurism that I never expected from a collection like this, and I love it. Yes, folks, this is a very cool one. No doubt about it, folks. Let's press on to our third look now at Yellow Submarine, aka the very first Beatles song I ever heard. And this time we get to hear what the song actually sounded like in the studio before the Beatles were able to get all, you know, trippy and psychedelic with it. This is Yellow Submarine Take 4, Before Sound Effects. Yes, that is actually the title. One, two, three. In the time. Was born, lived a man who sailed to sea, and he told us of his life in the land of submarines. So we sailed unto the sun till we found the sea of green, and we lived beneath the waves in our yellow submarine. Right, everyone, this one, especially with the on-the-nose title that it has, really speaks for itself. This was the final take that was used for the final album, aka Take 4, and that is it. This is what was recorded live before all the sound effects were added, and since the song is so, admittedly, technically proficient and ambitious and full of studio wizardry, it does make sense that we would want to hear the track in its rawest form. Once more, we get to hear just how unreliant the Beatles were on said studio trickery and how the songs at their core are based on strong melodies, tight playing and pitch-perfect harmonies. Yeah, I've spent a lot of this episode talking about how great it is to peek behind the curtain and listen to the Beatles doing their thing, and at this point, I think I'm just repeating myself if I go into any more detail, but that's how I feel about songs like this. That being said, I do have something that I never thought I'd ever hear myself say, and that is... The fact that the highlight of this track for me, more than anything, is the vocal performance from Ringo. Again, the clearer mix means we actually get to hear his true chops that he was bringing to the mic that day. You know, many probably assumed that some of that studio wizardry would have also bled into, you know, tuning up Ringo's vocal that day, maybe obscuring some of his shortcomings. But here we get definitive proof that he gave a bloody strong vocal performance for this song on that day. All in all, I've got to admit that I really do like this one. I mean, the song itself is an undisputed classic, but I would be lying through my front teeth if I claim that I, I don't enjoy just hearing the Beatles do their thing. 
And even if I am being a little hyperbolic in saying that I like this more than the final version, I am going to end on saying that they are at least as good as each other because they're both so different. You know, if you like live music, you'll probably prefer this one. If you like production, then you might like the final one. Again, it's more of a matter of taste, but oh my god, they're both so tasty, aren't they? And for our final and fourth study on every kid's favourite Beatles song, we have a version that highlights the stellar work of the Beatles' technical crew and producers. This is Yellow Submarine Highlighted Sound Effects. Yellow Submarine. And we were marched till three the day to see them gathered there. From Lander Groats to John O'Green, with Stepney do we tread. To see us yellow submarine, we love it. In the town where I was born, lived a man who sailed to sea. And he told us of his life in the land of submarines. So we sailed on to the sun Till we found the sea of green And we lived beneath the waves In our yellow submarine We all live in a yellow submarine Yellow submarine Yellow submarine So... In stark contrast to the majority of the bonus content we've seen on this collection that has focused on either the Beatles or instrumental parts individually, we finally have a cut that, like the title suggests, highlights the technical proficiency and potency of this album. And in terms of sequencing, it totally makes sense. You know, we've heard a stripped-down version of a song and now we get to, you know, focus on all of the kooky bells and whistles that make it into the... PG psychedelic marvel that we all love. Again, this is another one of those tracks that was clearly included because the people putting it together felt like not enough light or praise had been shed upon a certain aspect of the Fab's recording process. Actually, you know what? Scratch that. This is a George Martin extravaganza. You know, he's headlining this venture. This is all stuff that he'd learned from like his time with the goons, all these silly special effects. And so it's very clear that his little boy, Giles, chose to include this one because it was a way to accentuate the work of his progenitor. Now, does it mean that I don't think this song should have been included? Maybe. I mean, it might be the slightly more pointless version of Yellow Submarine of the four that we have here, but it admittedly isn't on the level of the slowed down version of Rain or anything like that. It is the other half of the coin of the last version we heard, so... Again, it makes sense why it would be on here. And in all fairness, this mix does do exactly what it says on the tin to highlight the special effects of this track. You know, it is done quite well. I'm not sure if it's a track that's been like made up in the modern era or whether it was something that existed in the 60s. I'll definitely have to look that up, but that would be quite interesting. Though it's not all doom and gloom. I'm not just going to harp on this track. It does have something that gives it a proper uh, value for money as far as I'm concerned and that is because it has the inclusion of Lennon's little poem that starts the whole thing off. Of course it's read by Ringo still as he's the lead vocalist but it's just John all over isn't it? Like what's not to love about it? 
It's decidedly regional and northern as hell. It sets up the song with an equally jaunty and silly tableau. It posits Ringo as a literal storyteller before going into the tale. And it has those great footstep foley sounds, which was apparently achieved with a bag of coal. And it all ends with the Beatles going, we love it, in unison, which literally made the hair stand up on the back of my neck when I heard it. Like, it was just so spooky and cool. I was so great. I mean, in conclusion, I will say that this is a rather odd inclusion, and I think it's less informative than it thinks it is. Like, of course, Giles would want to include this this one, but it's not really a particular aspect of the song that I have any particular interest in. Maybe that's what's stopping me from crossing over into the barrier of really liking it. Uh, perhaps we already got the message with three yellow submarines already, and this is the superfluous one. And it may have been better served by something else, but I would have to see all the files now, wouldn't I? Note to self, write to Apple and ask for all of the alternate takes from every Beatles song ever. I'm sure they will acquiesce. Anyway, we are now coming towards the end of this collection, finally, and it is now time for the third of the George Harrison compositions from this album, from this great revolver. This is I Want to Tell You Speech and Take Four. Granny Smith, Bart, Higgins, who? I can't. Tell you. That's a nice song. Tell you. You've never had a title, sir. Friends, I've got one. Laxon Superb. Here we come looking, the music sings me. Four. One, two, three, four. Straight up, we have to discuss the elephant in the room with this track. And the major downside is the fact that so much of this is just studio chitter-chatter, both at the beginning and the end. And yes, I know that on every other track where there is studio banter, I have praised it to no end. But the reason why it sucks here is because this leaves the actual track, the actual music, with only around 45 seconds of actual playing. But... It's hardly a sin of omission, as it was likely the best alternate track for them to use. Uh, we only get one version of I Want to Tell You on this collection. It'd be nice to think that there was another one, but clearly this must be the best one. That's why they included it. And it did leave me wanting more. Maybe this will be like Love You Too, and there'll be more audio for me in another 15 years. But I don't really want to wait that long. You know, This is supposed to be a very complete box set. But still, at least the playing we do get is still pretty good, kinda. Yeah, it's hard to tell, really. Like, how, how do you even judge bad playing from the Beatles at this point when they are as tight-knit as they are? So, all I really have to go off is how it makes me feel, and to be honest, I really didn't get all that much from this one. It didn't stir all that much in me. Like, it really doesn't feel like a take that was chosen for any reason outside of the fact that it was probably the least awful one, except for one that, you know, made it onto the final album. 
You know, the, the, maybe that was the only good take they had. It is a karaoke song, yes, as it is just a backing track, which is always interesting on some level, but there's nothing particularly revelatory or revealing. There's nothing different about the arrangement, and it all just ends just as you're getting into the groove. Yeah, I don't know. This one was a bit of a whimper for me. I've always adored I Want to Tell You. It's a real highlight of the album. And after having just heard four different versions of Yellow Submarine, I was kind of expecting something with a little more oomph to it. Maybe this is meant to be a little come down before we start ending the collection. You know, it isn't awful, but it certainly didn't scratch any of my itches. And the more I think about it, sometimes leaving you wanting more actually is a bad thing. Right, after that, we come on to a song that really has to be a part of any conversation about Revolver because it allows Paul to bring up the subject of John always liking this song all the bloody time. This is Here, There and Everywhere, take six. One, two, three. To lead a better life I need my love to be here Making each day of the year Changing my life with a wave of her hand Nobody can deny that there's something there There Running my hands through her Both of us thinking how good it can be Someone is speaking But she doesn't know he's there I Now, I know I've derided other songs on this bonus set for just being another take of the song and that is exactly what this is but... Oh my! <laughs> what a just another take this is! I guess it somehow exists in a strangely quirky Venn diagram being both just another take as well as being something wildly different. Like the instrumentation and the arrangement being played by the Beatles is as tight and as on point as ever. But then we get to Paul's vocal. Yes, what we get with this take is an entirely new, entirely fresh vocal take from 1966 Paul McCartney. Of course, he sings in a similar style, speed and cadence, but as you heard just there, it is still entirely different. It is completely fresh, and oh my god, is it ever one of the most divine things I've ever heard. Like, most vocalists would give their left arm or left leg, or left anything actually, to have a take as good as this, let alone an outtake. If anything, this is the opposite of those karaoke tracks whereby the lack of vocal allows me to appreciate the instrumentation more. And instead, since the Beatles are so on point and tight as a band, it can just allow me to appreciate the vocal performance instead. I mean, I'm glad it's not just a pure vocal take with no instrumentation or anything behind it. That would be far too dry and not sell the effect as well. Like, this is the exact kind of thing I'd like to hear for an alternate version of Here, There and Everywhere. You know, we always wax lyrical about Paul having one of the greatest rock and roll shouty throaty vocals. But what we have here is another opportunity to bask in just how mellifluous our Paulie can be when he does something as tender and sentimental as this. Like, we all know Paul's ballads inside and out, but in fairness, 
here, there, and everywhere is something special in that it really isn't as vampy or as in-your-face as, like, Let It Be, Only Love Remains, or even one of my favourites, Through Our Love. Instead, Paul is being really subtle and precise in everything that he's doing. You know, the touch is just so gentle. And, yeah, this is noticeably different from the final track. So it's nice to see him clearly throwing a lot of stuff at the wall and seeing which would be the most romantic and winning and loving, you know. But he still knows, you know, what he's meant to be aiming for, like I say. And just hearing that restraint in his performance is so incredible. So yeah, another fine addition to this collection. It is another one of those songs where I'm like, oh, there's only one for here, there and everywhere. But... I don't know what more you need from more takes of here, there, and everywhere. So, you know, I'm not going to complain too much. And we are coming to the end now, folks. And uh, I actually got criticised in an email or a Patreon comment or a YouTube comment or something on my constant use of the word penultimate uh, when I come to a penultimate song. So um, we, are, we are not at the penultimate song, folks. We are at the second to last one on this double vinyl spectacular. And we have... She said, she said, John's demo. Hello? Oh. Uh, okay. after several songs where I profess that I love solo acoustic demos, then you will not be surprised that I love this particular solo acoustic demo. Of course, I was always going to like this one, as with a lot of these tracks, and there are no two ways about it. It is absolutely enthralling. It is insightful. It's, it's, it's wondrous. Once again, we have a Beatle, this time John, alone, presumably in his Kenwood home, putting another banger to tape. But instead of it being an acid pop rock spectacular that it would become, it's this completely charming, wholesome, delicate acoustic ditty with John clearly having a whale of a time playing it. Now, as some of you may know, this song is supposedly a John and George joint venture, but, you know, with the Beatles being the Beatles, they did anything but credit George. So this clearly must have been recorded before George came over one day and helped him finish it off in that one-on-one writing session. You know, these demos are at their most successful when they are the most different from the final track, and this one rivals Love You Too for the most stark contrast. Uh, You know, I don't really think Yellow Submarine counts that because it's really more of a fragment than a whole song. Instead, we have another soulful, expressive version of this song in its most rudimentary form, and 
When I say rudimentary, I mean rudimentary. This is a very early stab indeed, and it's clear that Lennon isn't even sure what the end result's going to be. Uh, he, he does have like the general cause down, but the riff isn't there. The lyrics are also unfinished and delightfully different, with um, John replacing Like I've Never Been Born with Like My Trousers Are Torn, as well as an attempt to sneak in a swear word into a Beatles song with, rather than who put all those things in your head, he says, who put all that crap in your head? Additionally, we don't yet have the when I was a boy bridge, with John just going right back into the main verse. Again, that might be part of the George Harrison session together as well. But something's also telling me in my head right now that maybe it existed as a separate song fragment somewhere else. I don't know. Please don't quote me. But yeah, this is another absolute 10 out of 10 track for this set. It brought me so much joy, taught me loads about the song, one that I've always loved. And overall, there was little more than I could possibly want from it. And finally, folks, finally, 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 we are bloody here. After all these songs, after all this time, the last track in this collection. And boy, oh boy, are we ever ending on just what more you would have expected from what we've covered so far. Yet, yeah, this isn't going to be exactly an earth shatterer, a massive surprise for us here, it, but it's still kind of gripping in its own way. This is She Said, She Said, Take 15, backing track rehearsal. Here we are, folks. After two vials worth of content, we are at the end of this educational romp through the Revolver Sessions, and what better way to end it than with a mashup of two genres of track that we've become familiar with. For this, we have a karaoke backing track and a rehearsal, all in one. Actually, with a healthy dose of studio chattering, so it could even be three genres. You know, by now we all know, folks, that the reason these instrumental backing tracks and rehearsal tracks have been included is because Giles, the surviving Beatles and their estate are all in agreement that they reveal something intrinsically insightful to the musicianship of the fabs that may have been obscured somewhat during the recording. And again, she said, she said, whilst not to the extent of other tracks, uh, you know, despite having an iconic riff and a brilliant play from all of the band is somewhat dominated by the vocals and so we get to fully focus on that again. And, you know, it's another one of these tracks that allows you to fully comprehend what is going on. God, I feel like I've said that a million times this episode. But yeah, you really can appreciate their musicianship in this track. What's also cool about it being a rehearsal for a backing track is just how well they nail it. You know, I mean, it really sounds fit for purpose. You know, if this was the rehearsal, you know, then clearly they were very close to nailing the final track. 
In terms of the studio chatter, it was great to have the album end with such a joyous little bit of patter, you know, to leave us all smiling for the closer. The band are all clearly in high spirits, as we even specifically hear George of all people laugh. And again, it's just fun to be in their company. It's like a friendship simulator, but it's the fucking Beatles. What's even more fitting is that we literally get John shouting, Last song! Which, now that I think about it, is 100% the reason why this is the last thing on the album. Uh, Also shout out to whoever shouted Mr. Starkey, which uh, not only was it a really fun pronunciation of that, but it's always nice to be reminded that they didn't call him Ringo in private. Oh, and, you know, this track even has accounting, which again, well, you know how I feel about that by now. Yes, this is the last of the bonus tracks we have, folks. It's pretty good. It's better than mediocre, but it's not much better. Uh, but that last song bit is so cute that I can't actually have a go at it for them choosing to end this way. Is it a grand closer? No, but it's fitting enough with the theme, so let's let it slide. And there we are, folks. We are finally at the end of all of the bonus tracks, those double vinyls worth of bonus content from the Revolver Sessions. And, oh, my gosh, I need to just sit and have a break for five minutes. That was so many songs, wasn't it? I mean, when I sat down embarking to write all of this, I thought, yeah, you know, this will take like an hour or something. And, oh, my God, that has been so long. Whew. I mean, I think I've gone into pretty much a lot of detail about what I think about this set as a whole, but just in conclusion, at the end of all of those reviews, I will say that despite there being some flubs and certain tracks that I really don't get why they exist on there, and more than a couple that are quite just mediocre with minor differences, I was overall pleased with this set. Having two discs worth of bonus content is always something that will draw me to these box sets, and this is a fantastic example of that. I mean, as a whole, as a collection, it really is an eye-opening look into the Revolver Sessions. It teaches you things that might not be able to be conveyed effectively through a book. This set does just plonk you in the room with the fabs, and as an audio documentary, it is completely worth the the price tag because you will come away 100% with a better, more detailed, more rounded look at Revolver. But we are not yet done, folks. No. Finally, after all of that, it is time for us to talk about the least oft-mentioned inclusions in these box sets, which is the coffee table book that comes with the vinyl. Yet, maybe coffee table might be a little grandiose for a book that is quite admittedly slim, but it's also still very big. And it's resplendent in its presentation, and would still look good on any coffee table. I know that I only have the Let It Be book as a point of comparison, but from what I've seen, these books are always of the highest physical quality and on the upper end of mediocre in terms of content. I mean, these books will never be as in-depth as an outsider writing about these sessions specifically, but in all fairness, they always do their jobs in describing the sessions succinctly and in as much detail as they can fit, as well as describing what you are physically listening to in the box set. You know, it might be more useful to think of these as highly detailed, high-quality instructional user manuals for the music you are about to experience. And if you do so, you'll totally get what they're going for. Now, I'd like to wrap up my thoughts on this book quite quickly, as this episode has been long enough already, but there are quite a few things I do just want to touch on. 
Firstly, I just want to talk about the cover. Uh, shout out to the graphic designer of this book, Mr. Darren Evans. I think he was the, the art director, actually, in my notes here. Um, because one of the best parts about the book is how the cover is both really proud and really subtle about its revolver heritage. What do I mean? Well, at first glance, the book just looks like a plain white book. But then you tilt it against the light and you get like these clear, hidden plastic impressions, I guess, or like, you know, shiny book material of the hair from the Revolver album cover. It's not black, it's clear, and it's on the white background, but there's just that subtle little hint that this is going to be something you are really going to love. There's a little bit of mystique to it there, a little bit of, ooh, ah, you know, very glossy, very cool, very chic. I know it's really little, but it got me excited for the book. Also, just to say, I think it's safe that this book will be able to stand on its own a little more proudly, as there isn't a competitor book being put out by Peter Jackson in conjunction with a Revolver docuseries, because there isn't a Revolver docuseries by Peter Jackson, but oh my god, I wish there was. But yeah, right off the bat, this one is at least going to be a far more unique experience in terms of big books about this album this year. I do want to highlight, before we talk about any of the content though, about the pictures in this book. Because, oh my god, is it the most rich and opulent collection of 1966 photos of the Beatles that I have ever seen. Yes, Apple, aka the people who have rights-free access to the vaults of all pictures of the Beatles, are able to put out the best book with pictures of the Beatles. Yes, you know, it's no surprise to anyone. But that doesn't take away from the, the visual splendour they put in this book. It's all in such high quality. Like some of these photos you've only ever seen in like tiny thumbnails on the on the screen or in really small books. And just to have them blown up in full colour. Oh, it's so resplendent. And the, the, the variety of content you get in there is just a visual treat and a feast. You get unseen images of the Beatles, or at least unseen by me, in the studio and from other photo shoot outtakes. You get pictures of original tape boxes and paperwork and lyrics that went with each individual song. Like, all the actual documentation for everything is all there. You get some of their, like, day-to-day tour schedules. And you even get a comic book segment that I'm going to be covering shortly. Like, there's just such a variety of the imagery in this book and some of it's presented very tastefully and very artistically as well like just as a visual experience like say if you were just glancing through it would still be such an experience but you know let's actually talk about the words in the book and starting off we have the foreword for this book that was written by none other than Ringo Starr aka Richard Starkey (laughs) okay That was a lie. Of course they didn't let Ringo write this forward, as of course it was written by our boy Paul. And just as a heads up, this is just like his last forward in the Let It Be complimentary coffee table book, in that it was clearly dashed off in an afternoon, in between probably more interesting activities, and that it barely even fills up a single page that it rests upon. He basically just talks about how creative they were in this period, and he goes through each of the songs, doing his classic one page, very surface level type commentary that, whilst fun to imagine in my poor Paul impersonation, I don't think anyone was going to make him say anything new about Revolver at this point in his life. 
So my advice would be not to go in expecting this to be nearly as insightful or as interesting as some of the bonus content. <laughs> you know, this isn't going to be like the intro for Paul McCartney, the lyrics or anything like that. Though the one bit that did stand out to me is the comment he made about love you too and I want to tell you. He talks about taxman separately in relation to how they were feeling the bite of taxation as a group at the time. But with those other two songs, Paul said, Love you too, and I want to tell you, Mark George's steady advance in songwriting, which would later lead to some of his great classics. Like, for fuck's sake, Paul, I know that deep down you still may not appreciate how good George's early songs were, because you cannot help but look down on him as baby brother George, but can you seriously not sum up the effort in you to just lie and say that you have a newfound appreciation for these songs after all these years? I mean, it's hilarious, truly fucking side-splitting that Paul is seemingly incapable of not shitting on George's songs, even though he knows that this is their most highly regarded album and George has three songs on it. I mean, how can you not laugh at this stuff, folks? This whole intro just exists because they knew it was important for them to have a forward by Paul, rather than because they knew Paul would have anything interesting to say. Very box-checking, nostalgia bait, and it's all it was ever going to be because, you know... We need a Beatle to write this thing, and it was never going to be Ringo. You know, I'm kind of done with this whole thing, but it's never going to change, so let's not waste any more time, because we are going to now come on to the introduction proper, and appropriately, it is by the man for whom this whole project would never have come to fruition, a.k.a. Mr. Giles Martin. And as with Paul's little essay, this is rather short, but probably at least doubled the length of Paul's, and it does fill up the single page a little more effectively. Now, normally I would go into more detail here, but rather than talking about generalities of the album, he basically just d describes all the points that I touched on about the stereo uh, mix and how all that technology came to be. You know, we covered that earlier in this episode. It literally is just that, you know, the delay in making it, the breakthroughs in tech, the Peter Jackson connection, all of it. Though there was one thing that I did want to touch on that I did think was quite interesting, and, of course, because it actually is something interesting, it's right at the very end of the passage and barely touched on at all, he writes the following. You'll notice that there's nothing too extreme here. There's no point in using technology just because it's there. This is music, after all. And to be honest, I never want anyone to hear the mixes. I just want everyone to enjoy the songs. First, wow, what kind of power and sway does a man like Giles have to be able to say anything other than this is the biggest, bestest, most game-changing remix ever in the history of the Beatles. Like, he really does display a level of restraint and honesty and consideration for the fans that surely baffled and infuriated the advertising execs at Apple. Surely he should be focusing on all the changes and how different it is and why it should be bought, but no. A, he knows that you know, you've already bought it, and B, he knows that the fans aren't really after anything all too different. Like, that Pepper one really was pushing it, and there were some alterations on Abbey Road, but I think the idea of just making it more modern and giving it a new sheen is what you really should be aiming for, and it's nice that he recognises that. Genuinely, one little phrase has done more for my respect towards Giles Martin than anything else he's ever achieved. Clearly, he gets it, he gets us, and refuses to pander to the lowest common denominator. All great stuff. Right, after two lightweight introductory writings, it's now time for us to tackle 
the first of the heavier works in this book, and it comes in the form of a proper Beatles essay by none other than Questlove. Now, who or what or why is a Questlove, you might be asking yourself? Well, Amir Questlove Thompson is an American musician, record producer, disc jockey, filmmaker, music journalist, and actor. Although, you may very well already know him as the drummer and the uh, frontman for the hip-hop band The Roots, or maybe the joint frontman. And yes, that is The Roots, as in the house band for The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, The Roots. And why was he chosen for this essay exactly? Well, the fact that he and Paul McCartney, along with Fallon, re-recorded a version of Wonderful Christmas Time for the Holidays Rule album back in 2017 likely has something to do with it. But yeah, Questlove is known both as a creative musical genius and he does a lot of writing on music in big publications and is an unabashed fan of the band, so it makes sense why he would be chosen. Now, as I was reading it, the first thing that the essay reminded me of was the one written by Hanif Qureshi for the The Beatles Get Back, the Peter Jackson coffee table book. And it reminded me of Qureshi's writing in the way that it's another case where, rather shrewdly, Apple has been wise enough to continue featuring alternative experiences of people who might not immediately be expected to be Beatle fans. You know, with Qureshi, it was the perspective of a man of Indian descent and of immigrant status, and with Questlove, he is an African-American man. And with both, you get a chance to read an essay that is unlike all the other kind of white middle-aged bloke essays that have been featured in similar Beatles media. Questlove's writing doesn't hold back and does take advantage of the viewpoint that hasn't been as expressed before, the black perspective on the Beatles, and he includes a strong focus on the relationship between the Beatles and black music, both in terms of their roots and their influence, and you know, into, and his own experience as a black man getting into the Beatles as well. And whilst that might be a little too real for some of the readers out there, I found it to be completely refreshing and a uniquely insightful take on how the Beatles affect different people. Genuinely, you will not have read a Beatles essay like this one, especially not such a formal Apple release, and it only serves to benefit the collection. He also gives his own history on how he came into the band, and obviously, as a podcaster, I ask people that all the time, and so, you know, by the time I was done reading through that, I was already deep into the essay and enjoying the writing too much to stop, and the best part of his own story was how, um, and this is kind of similar to something a lot of people touch on, uh, familiar yet unfamiliar. Uh, you know, most people, when typically talking about the Beatles, they will have heard all the fab songs from their parents or on the radio, whereas Questlove speaks about how he heard the Beatles, you know, he had heard the songs, but it was through covers by black artists or the Beatles being sampled in other songs. He also has a great anecdote about playing Love You Too at a DJ set and how shocked he was that people didn't immediately clear the dance floor. And it's full of little personal details that I really enjoy, like how he's just watched the Peter Jackson series and how he's been listening to Revolver on LSD. And the whole thing feels like a genuine conversational chat about the band, even if it is completely one-sided. It's rather like he's doing his own Beatles podcast, albeit one that is far better written than this. Overall, I was very happy with this piece. I mean, no matter how good these essays are, they're never going to be the main point of interest for the book, but that certainly doesn't mean that this is worth skipping in any way. It's a great setup for the book, 
especially since the rest of it's going to be so dry and informative. And so to have something as personal, informal and fun as this makes for a nice contrast. You know, it feels like chatting to a school friend just before you sit down for class. Right, after all of the introductory fluff, it is now time for us to move on to the meat and potatoes of this book, or uh, tofu and potatoes of this book, and that is the extensive behind-the-scenes content written by James Howlett. Howlett himself is an author best known for his book The Beatles, the BBC Archives 1962-1970, to which was received to great acclaim. There's a great episode of uh, Things We Said Today with Ken Michaels, where they interview him on it. I suggest you go check it out. But yeah, the man has certainly earned his chops. The book is clearly very well regarded by Apple. And his work totals four segments in this book, all of which are longer than anything that came previously. And they oddly mirror the formatting of a regular podcast episode. His segments are The Road to Revolver, where he talks about the lead to the album. Then we have track by track which is pretty self-explanatory there's the cover where they did discuss as you may have guessed the iconic klaus Vormann album cover and revolver reception where howlett discusses how it was received and how opinions have changed over time i'm not going to go into as extensive detail with this part of the book because i mean a lot of it is quite self-explanatory but i would also you know, like you to go ahead and read it as well try and get a copy if you can but I will still touch on each part so then we can finally wrap this shit up, folks. Come on. Howlett's first segment, The Road to Revolver, immediately displays his aptitude for writing about the Beatles. I mean, when I say this thing is insanely comprehensive, I cannot em emphasise it further, especially considering that this segment isn't all that long. I mean, it's about six pages, pages with pictures, I might add, and he manages to cover the impact of the Beatles' current film career on the, the sessions coming to be, how that led into the Beatles having more free time to go out and expand their cultural influences, what all of those said cultural influences were and what they led to in the sessions, as well as where all the Beatles were in their personal lives. The amount of detail and quotes he's able to cram in there alongside all that stuff is simply awesome. And overall, it's the best pound-for-pound -pound cliff notes of everything you need to know pre-revolver ever put out. Like many of you out there, the go-to segment for me was always going to be the track-by-track track part, and let me say that it is totally everything you would want from an official Revolver coffee table book. Same as the last segment, the level of detail is absolutely uncanny, and Howlett's writing takes you through the journey of each song effortlessly without ever feeling stale. Being that he covers all 14 album tracks plus the singles, with each song having around two pages dedicated to them, this segment is by far the longest portion of the book, but is no less packed with information, nor does it read any slower. When presented with more room, Howlett simply packs in even more information, and the amount I learned from each song never ceased to amaze. I was like, I bet I know everything about one song he's going to say, and I never did. Not sure about any of you hardcore fans, but I was generally impressed with how much actual new knowledge was put in here. Although, the best part of the track-by-track -track segment was how truly it lived up to that title, as not only does it discuss the 14 main Revolver album tracks in exquisite detail, but how it goes one step further and directly covers all of the songs featured on the two bonus uh, discs and how they relate to the final version of the song. Also, before we move on, 
I do just want to point out how strongly the segment starts as it transitions from the Road to Revolver segment rather seamlessly by first focusing on all of the studio details and the new staff and recording techniques that the album was to employ. Like It does finish setting the stage very adequately, which allows him to streamline the whole segment as a whole and make it read very leisurely. Then we come to the cover, which discusses the cover. And when I say this is eight pages long, you might be wondering what Howler is able to ramble on about for all that time, as it makes it even longer than the Road to Revolver segment. Well, it turns out that there is only one page with actual writings about the album cover, and it is in the same level of depth and uh, densely packed information as the other segments. But it's the use of the other seven pages that is the real treat, probably of the whole book. As it turns out, Klaus Vormann actually wrote and drew a whole comic book about how he came to design the Revolver album cover. And Howlett actually goes right ahead and just straight up features seven pages worth of said comic in this book. It's fucking awesome through and through. Not only because Vormann's artwork in the comic is dynamic and brilliant at capturing uh, emotion as well as the physical image of the Beatles, but also because it offers... Uh, an insight into an obscure perspective in the Beatles story that really isn't discussed all that much. The whole thing is a total surprise, as it is a delight from start to finish, and is a near-perfect curveball inclusion that makes this book in this box set feel even more complete. And rounding out the book, we have Howlett's Revolver Reception segment, and yes, look, it's detailed, it's really well thought out, there's loads of quotes, there's loads of perspectives taken into account. He talks about the contemporary change, you know, that, that switch from Pepper to Revolver being the best album. He covers it all. It's all pretty simple, folks. So, in conclusion, this book easily keeps it with the same quality that we've seen from all the official Beatle and Beatle-related material coming from Apple and the other assorted companies recently. The quality of the content, the presentation, the materials used in its construction are all top-notch, as I've mentioned earlier. And in terms of value for money, it complements the set as a whole, as it covers all of its bases comfortably. You know, this whole box set has been far more informative and educational, two words that I've overused this whole episode a lot, because of all the bonus content. So, you know, you've got a mono version of the album, you've got all these deep... Uh, intricate looks at each song, sometimes four tracks for each song explaining its you know journey. And so the book is equally as detailed. You know, it is definitely in that same educational camp. And it has all of that need-to-know information for the casuals. That's done. It has loads of detail for the hardcore fans. It's got an incredible array of photos for people who aren't likely to read a book. And it even has smatterings of content that you won't be able to read anywhere else for all you Beatles completionists. As you know, I'm someone who does struggle to sit down and actually read a book, and so for me to basically devour this whole thing in one single sitting after getting the box set demonstrates just how fun and easy it is to read. Yeah, it's, it's not that long, but, you know, baby steps, folks, baby steps. It's entertaining without being lightweight, it's informative without being boring. You know, if I was introducing someone to Revolver and they wanted a book about everything they needed to know, I think this would be a perfect jumping-off point. You know, they would get everything they wanted, but, you know, it, it would also set set it up perfectly for someone who wants to go into even more detail in other books. It, it, it does hint at the wider world of this story without getting bogged down in it. It's a perfect part of the box set, and I feel very lucky to own it. Top stuff. Oh, and there we are, everyone. We are finally at the end of the belated Revolver review. 
I hope it hasn't been too long. I, I know this episode's taken a while to come out. I've been deathly ill for about three weeks. I've had a terrible flu. It wasn't COVID, just a straight up normal flu. I had it over Christmas. I've had it over the two weeks I've had off on my holiday. It's been a right palaver, but I've felt better over the last couple of days and I've finished off this episode. Fortunately, the next few episodes are going to be very easy and very quick to record, so there will not be a delay. I might even put them out quicker than once a week. But yeah, overall, I personally am very pleased with this box set. It's my second one now. It's very precious to me. I was probably always going to like it, especially since you wonderful people at Patreon basically bought it for me. Many thanks there. But yeah, it's the same high quality that we've always gotten. There are certain things that niggled me about it at first, but... You know, after I've spent some time with it, it really has grown on me. In fact, this episode's been so belated that you've been with this box set for a while now as well. So let me know your thoughts on this Revolver box set. Do we share similar opinions? Drop me an email at formalcodepod at gmail.com. Hit me up on the Twitter. Folks, I'm not going to keep you another minute longer. This has taken far too long to come out. So let's just wrap things up. You've been listening to another episode of Paul or Nothing. I've been your host, Sam Wiles. Peace and love, peace and love. No more autographs. Harry, Harry Krishna, play us out there.